Sports Business Radio launched in 2004. Brian Berger has interviewed the biggest names in sports and business. Let's step into the Sports Business Radio vault and look back on some of our favorite conversations. This week, NBA All-Star and Portland Trailblazer, Damian Lillard. NBA All-Star, Baron Davis. And six-time world champion and Olympic gold medalist, Sugar Ray Leonard. Now, enter the Sports Business Radio vault. Here's Brian's interview with Damian Lillard from July 2019. Well, thanks for joining us on this week's edition of Sports Business Radio. This is one I've been working on for quite some time. One of the best athletes in sports, uh, a guy who does so much on and off the court, Damian Lillard from the Portland Trailblazers. You can follow him on Twitter at Dame underscore Lillard. You can follow him on Instagram at Damian Lillard, Rookie of the Year, All-NBA four times, just won the J. Walter Kennedy Citizenship Award, and one of the rare guys... Might be the only guy. Two walk-off series winning shots in his career in the playoffs. Ended a series against the Houston Rockets, and more recently in last year's playoffs, ended the series against the Oklahoma City Thunder. Enjoy this interview with Damian Lillard. I'm with Damian Lillard at Damian Lillard Basketball Camp. Dame, uh, go back to when you were a kid. What's the first basketball camp you went to? Um, The first basketball camp that I went to was called Triple Threat Academy. I think I was in like the fifth grade. It's probably in the fifth grade. And it was like my first time like going to a camp where like I wasn't with my friends. Mm -hmm. My dad took me, he wanted me to be out there on my own and have to like meet new people and talk to people and play against like good competition. So he took me outside of Oakland to this camp where he paid for me to go. All the kids were good players, and that was like my first experience. So you probably have a pretty great appreciation for some of the kids that come to your camp. I know you're so involved. You're here all the yeah. time. Like a lot of guys put their name on the camp, but they're there at the beginning and the end. You're here for the whole thing. Well, I mean, like you said, they put their name on it. Yeah. And, you know, I just don't put my name on anything. If my name is there, then I'm going to make sure it's the, the best product possible. And... Not just that, I want the kids to have a great experience. Um, you know, if they if if it's not about them having a great experience and them um, learning things uh, about the game and learning things um, that I could help them do in life, then you know why I have a camp. Um, you know, I've been a part of camps where the players showed up at the end right. and took a picture, and that was it. And I don't want my camp to be that because I can go to the mall and take a picture with people if that's the if that's the case you know what i'm saying so right one of the things that i really marvel at about you and and you know i've lived here for 26 years i used to work with mr taylor over there back in the Jake day Pizzle. at the at the trailblazers your connection with the community is unlike anything i've ever seen from an athlete here or really in other cities that i've lived in uh mm-hmm. your respect program you've got the t-shirt on you know i read a story the other day there was a kid in eugene who Needed size 18 shoe. He's 14 years old. He's having to cut off the toe. You send him 25 pairs. You just won the J. Walter Kennedy Citizenship Award, which is such a prestigious honor. Where did your compassion for giving back to the community come from? Um, As far as giving back to the community, I think that just comes from having compassion, period. I just, you know, I, I see people and I... I see where I can help or I see where I can have impact and 
I just want to do it, um, especially given the position that I've been, you know, fortunate enough to be in. I just want to, I just want to do it. You know, I enjoy seeing people get picked up and making people happy, just doing stuff for other people. Um, but I think I learned compassion itself from my mom. You know, I always tell people how, you know, how much she went through with her jobs and um, just different things that I've watched her go through. Mm -hmm. um, but every Christmas, we would wake up and we would open gifts, you know, that my dad and my mom got for me, my brother, my sister. And then after that, you know, we had to, the Christmas party at my grandmother's house would be at like six o'clock and we would be up opening our stuff at nine or 10 o'clock. We up opening everything and we would be done by say 11 o'clock after we open it, we play with our stuff, whatever. And then my mom would be like making us get ready for the Christmas party right away. Like we was putting our clothes on, putting our toys and our video games and all that stuff away. And then we had to put gifts in bags like, okay, this bag is for Grandma Ruth's house, my dad's mom, and this bag is going to Auntie Wanda. This bag is going to Auntie Van's house. This bag is going to Auntie Clyde's house. And we literally would have like full big black trash bags of gifts going to this person's house and that person's house. And we would make six or seven stops dropping off gifts to make sure every kid here had something. Even if it was some socks or a mm -hmm. beanie or some pajama pants or a toy, like I remember being at the mall and my mom would just be stopping in random stores, just getting little stuff, just making sure, oh, I can get this for so-and-so and, -so, and right. I can get this. She made sure every year, my entire life, that everybody had something. You know, in a lot of those years, that was the only gift that people got. But all those stops, you know, I never forget them because it would be like by the time we were done, it would be five. 30, almost time to just go to my grandmother's house. And we've been dropping off gifts at different cities, different houses. And I was like, she never had to do that. Like people didn't treat my mom well all the time. And people would talk about her behind her back and get mad when she didn't do stuff, but she did it all the time. And I think that's where I, where I learned to do it. You're an incredible leader on this team. You've created a culture for the Trailblazers. They come into the locker room and, and they just know what they're stepping into. When you need leadership or you need a mentor, who do you go to? Um, I have a few people. I talk to my dad um, just because my dad has always been in a position that I'm in now, like in a leadership role for mm -hmm. my family. Like, I'm one of the youngest of all my cousins, but because of like my career and my financial situation and like who I am as a public figure, now I'm like the leader of my family. So it's like, who am I gonna, who am I gonna talk to? Nobody else has ever been in this position, but my dad was. Like everybody just kind of listened to what my dad said and mm -hmm. what he said was law. And it was kind of like that. So. I've always talked to him like when I need somebody to give me direction because I know if anybody's going to keep it all the way real and tell me something, even if it's not what I want to hear, even if I don't like it and not really care how I feel about it, mm -hmm. it's going to be my dad. So, And that's with sports. That's with how I feel about a relationship with a friend, mm -hmm. um, with a girlfriend, like anything. I know my dad is going to tell me the real and, you know, it's going to, impact the way I approach that situation or how I lead, you know, um, going forward. I want to go back to when you were coming out of uh, Weber State. Uh, 
did you understand branding and marketing? Because it seemed to me when you first came out, you had the license to Lillard videos. I started learning about yeah. you. I didn't know, you know who you were other than when you worked out for the Blazers. Yeah. But through those videos, I started understanding who you were. Then I started following your social media. And I felt like I was starting to get to know yeah. you before you ever played. Yeah. How much of the storytelling about you and branding yourself did you understand when you were coming out of college? I didn't really understand it at all. I, I like, and that's like the beauty of all that stuff. License to Lillard. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in college, I did something called Damien's Diary, and I broke my foot in college, and I did a whole like video, like webisodes of my recovery. And it was just like sharing my story mm -hmm. and allowing people to get to know me. And that's all I did once I got drafted. It was like everything I read was, oh, he's unknown. He went to Weber State. He didn't do this. We don't, like nobody really knew anything. So that was my way of just letting people get to know me. And like the social media and everything, I was just being myself. <laughs> like that's all I ever did. And I think that's why it works because I'm not trying to market anything or trying to sell I'm not trying to sell myself. I'm just doing me, and um, it's it's allowed me to kind of stick to that, you know, and do things that I genuinely care about. And people believe it, you know. People support it because it's not just out of nowhere. I showed you from the beginning, like this is who I am. I didn't have to pretend. I didn't have to put on a show. So it was it was perfect for me, you know. It ended up looking like marketing and branding and all that stuff, and then everybody starts saying, "Oh, my brand." and I'm doing this and I'm doing that, but it's never it's never been that. So it's easy to you're authentic, and if you're just authentic, that's how people you can just be you, right? Like you, even when I'm might be doing something that people don't like, you can still appreciate it because this is what it is. This is who I am. Like yeah. you're not gonna find out about it. Like, oh well, we thought, you know, he never said a curse word before, <laughs> and then when I'm playing a game and I say I cuss at a referee. And they like, oh, we thought he didn't cuss. You know what right. I'm saying? Like, <laughs> you just, you, you going to get the real me. We see the real you on social media, which is part mm. of what I love about you. Uh, how did you kind of find your voice there? Because I know, like, some athletes clap back, as they call yeah. it, and, and you clap back. Uh, I saw you, you know, with Shannon Sharp. Yeah. And, and I mean, that wasn't really a clap back. That was just a response. So I just responded to what he said. I didn't agree with it. But I guess, you know, some people have to make the decision of, like, when do I respond? When do I just, like, let it be? And there's a lot of trolls out there yeah. that are just trying to get you to respond. How do yeah. you – do you have, like, a, a rule for here's when I respond, here's when I don't respond? I mean, usually – I can tell when somebody's saying something that they just want me to respond to. Like, if it's something that that person and I know is like is not true, then it's like they just want some attention, whatever. Sometimes I respond to them just for fun. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I'm gonna give you the attention you want because I know, like, even if it's like something like that, everybody that follows me or like supports me is gonna like tweet them to death. And then they just gonna like delete the tweet. Right. Or they'll like make their profile private, stuff like that. Sometimes I do that out of fun, but if it's something that somebody's saying and I'm like, I got an opinion about that, like I actually have a thought about that, then I respond and I'll say it. Like the Shannon Sharp situation. Mm -hmm. I actually had a had an opinion about that. Yeah.
And it's good because it's coming directly from you. It's yeah. not coming through another party. It's like, yeah. hey, we're hearing this from yeah, Dane. I tell you. I mean, you said it out loud to the public, and I'm going to respond out loud to the public. Right. Whereas it could have been you could just say it to me. Right. And then we can have this conversation. Yeah. But, I mean, that's kind of just what it is. Four Bar Friday. I love it. How did that start? I know you work, you know, Nate Jones is part of your, your team, and I'm a big fan of yeah. Nate's. Uh, Goodwin Sports is, is really great, uh, the support that they have for the athletes. How did Four Bar Friday start? Well, it started because I was doing, um, it was an app called Vine. Yep. I wasn't that. around for that long, but they only had six-second clips. Right. Like the video was only like six seconds, and I was trying to figure out, I wanted to start putting music out. And I wanted to start introducing people to me rapping. So I was trying to figure it out. And I was like, Vine is too, like the video is too short. Like I can't really, to get people to hear at least a rhyme or that you could put words together, it has to be at least four bars okay. to make stuff connect. Two bars is like incomplete. So I was like, Vine is too short. Um, and then Instagram was like 15 second videos at that time. So I was like, man, Instagram is like almost perfect. It was almost perfect because it was like, you probably need like 16 seconds to say four bars. And um, if you say it fast enough, you can get it off in 15 seconds. So I basically started practicing to get some bars off in that amount of time. But then Instagram made it one minute video. Right. And I was like, okay, this is perfect. Say four bars, hashtag, and just create a platform like I wanted to create a platform for me to introduce like me rapping mm -hmm. to people that follow me. And I also wanted to create a platform and a community for aspiring artists because I didn't want to approach it like I'm in the NBA, respect me as a rapper. I was like, okay, I'm going basically tag along with other aspiring artists and create a community of four bar Friday and just, we going to all do it together. We all going to participate every Friday and, it kind of just turned into what it turned into. We kept adding to it and making it a bigger deal. And eventually people started like, I would see people in public and they'd be like, you should do Four Bar Friday, you should do it. And I'd be like, I started Four Bar Friday. Like that was my idea. <laughs> like people really didn't know, like right. I started it. Yeah. It funny. Were you surprised at the response? Cause I saw like the average person do it, but then a lot of pro athletes were doing it too. Yeah, I mean, it was like, I reached out to LeBron and I was like, this dude got a big following. Right. Like people respect what he do. I was like, man, I need you to do a four bar Friday. I'm doing this whole thing. I seen you rapping on, I heard you rapping and stuff. I didn't heard you do some stuff. I need you to do four bars. And I kind of just reached out to a few people. Um, and then once other players saw like a few NBA players do it, Bun B did one, like a couple rappers. Mm -hmm. Um, Joey Badass did one. After that, everybody just kind of, I honestly don't even know if they knew that I was the one behind it. Yeah. They just saw all these people doing it and it was kind of like right now what would be like just something trending. It was like trendy, so everybody started doing it. And then from there, it just took off. Each each week, it just it was getting more and more participants. Like it was getting more and more people to the point where I started off just looking. I'd be like, okay, I'm going to look at every video and pick the top four for this week. Mm -hmm. And I would look at 60 videos and be like, okay, 
these the best ones. It got to the point where we had to like find like interns and people, <laughs> people that would like look through these like hundreds and hundreds and yeah. hundreds of videos and then send me the best of those. And then I'd be like, okay, these the best ones yeah. out of what y'all picked. So, I mean, that just shows you how much it's grown. Well, imagine like how cool it is for those people you pick their video. If if they were one of the four bar Friday winners, that's something they're gonna remember their whole life. Yes, yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool. Like, and then you get them to keep participating weekly because you start giving out rewards. Like at All-Star Weekend a few years back, we did like a whole four bar Friday competition. I remember that. And we like bought people's tickets to come there. They had hotel rooms, ticket to All-Star Saturday. And now they like wanting to be in the top four so they competing hard because they know it's like incentives. Like they looking forward to JBL headphones and sign shoes and right. tickets here and, you know, just stuff like that. Game tickets when they when I come to the city that you, you live in. Um, so it, it just grows and grows and grows. And this is what it's turned into. I want to continue talking about your your music. So Dame Dalla, uh, you tweeted out the other day, this album I'm finishing, my first two albums ain't touching it. Yeah. What's different about the third? And then can you walk me through your process when you decide, you know, are you doing the writing? Are you doing the beats? How do you decide who you're collaborating with? Um, so my first two albums I thought was good. The first one I did, I didn't really, I never made an album. So I just didn't. I didn't really know how to put it together. I didn't really have a, I knew what direction I wanted to go in. Like I wanted to do like storytelling. I wanted to basically do everything that I've always done, like introducing myself, but I wanted to wrap it basically. That was kind of my approach, but I didn't know how to put it together. I didn't know how to find good production. I didn't know how to find distribution. I didn't know about marketing and I didn't know nothing. I just knew I'm about to do an album and I'm gonna try to put it out. So basically, I thought it was strong, like lyrically, but how it was put together, I knew it could be better, but I was still proud of it. Like it did well for what it was. And then the second album, I had a little bit better idea. And I thought that one was a little bit better, but both of those albums was just a lot of input. Like this person thinks that, this person thinks this, you should do this, you should do that. And it was like, all of those things kind of made it not exactly what I wanted it to be. Okay. So that was, the second one was 2017. And then I didn't do no music last summer. Um, this summer, I just, I started training. I was on the road. Um, I was in Phoenix training for like a week. And I had this company that like set up studios in inside the house. They came and they set a studio up in the Airbnb that I was in. And the guy that I record with, engineer out of L.A., um, Nate Alford, he came down, stayed for the week. So I would go train in the morning, do my on-court stuff, lift, do my conditioning. And I would come back to the Airbnb and eat and just we were just in there making music. And I just started just coming with records like I was just writing. I did like we found good producers because his. He's engineered on like great projects, you know, with the best artists, Kanye's, um, Rihanna, wow. Jeremiah, um, Travis Scott. I mean, he's engineered with the best of them. So like me and him kind of developed this partnership to where like now I, I'm through him, I'm having access to the best production, the best producers, the best songwriters, stuff like that. So like 
I write my own lyrics, but a lot of people have like camps where they have songwriters come in and they'll write like the hook or like the whatever the topic of the song is. So we kind of sat down and we was just going through all that stuff and I was just recording, recording, recording. And everything that I was recording, it was stuff that I liked because it was just me and him. It wasn't everybody else's opinion and thoughts on this and thoughts right. on that. We just did it. And I was like, okay, I respect your opinion enough because of the projects that you've been around, like the level of music you've been around. And some stuff he was like, ah, oh, this is just okay, but you should finish this one. It would be something that I liked from the beginning and I'll just record a little bit and then I just kind of back off of it and start working on something else. And it was like three different times where he was like, you should finish this one. This one could be hard. You should finish this one. And like all of those songs ended up on the album. So like um, it's all stuff that I, that is me. Like it's what I wanted it to be. It wasn't a whole lot of opinions. And then when I finished it, I played it for other people and they was like, Oh, you coming new. Like this, this yeah. your best stuff. It was like, that's the way it should have been. You had a listening party the other night. How'd yeah. that go? It went well. It was the third time that I actually had a listening party. The first two times, like my music wasn't like, it didn't have a lot of bounce. It was just more, like I said, storytelling mm -hmm. and like just kind of good vibes. And this, this album is like, it's more energy. Like it's more tempo to the, the production. It's louder. It's more like, it's more fun. When's it coming out? When can people start downloading it? It's coming out soon. Um, I'm shooting for July 25th. Okay. That's when I would like to drop it. Um, I think that's I think that's accurate. That's probably going to happen. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to listen. Uh, I want to respect your time. I have a few more questions. Okay. So, sponsors. You know, again, I think one of the things the sponsors love about you, A, you're an amazing basketball player, but B, you're authentic. And they know what they're getting when they partner with you. The other thing, the guy friends at Adidas, and they're like, Dame comes out to campus. Yeah. He sits in on the meetings. He presents to the employees. Like, yeah. you're an engaged partner. Um, Adidas, Powerade, Hulu, Biofree, Spalding, Moda Health, you got a long list of yeah. endorsers. And I really think, Dame, like you're, you've changed the blueprint for small market basketball players. Everyone used to say, well, you can't get all these deals yeah. from a small market. Well, look at what you're doing. No one can say that anymore. How do you pick your partners? Because, you know, I'm sure you could be working with even more than yeah. this number of sponsors. But what is it that you're looking for when you partner with a company? Um, for me, it's just if what they're about and what they um, have in mind is in line with, with mine. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times that's the case. Like you said, I'm sure I could be partnering with everybody, you know, to make a little bit extra money. Like, okay, they're going to pay this. Let's do that. Right. They're going to pay... But a lot of times, every um, partner that I have is all connected. Like, yeah, I work with Adidas and Powerade and um, Moda Health and stuff like that. But everybody's willing to work together, mm -hmm. so all of my stuff can connect. So, um, if, if you know somebody's not in line with that or somebody doesn't want to be a part of that, then they just don't fit what I do. They don't fit what I'm about. Um, yeah. And it, I think it has changed, like, the way people view small markets. It's, it's kind of like what they tell people that go to small schools. they like, if you can play, they're going to find you. If you are good enough, they'll find you. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the same thing. If you're worthy of 
um, elevating them, elevating their company or, or whatever, and y'all can have a strong partnership and uh, it'll be beneficial, they'll find you. It'll work out. The other thing I love that you do, you, you activate so well, whether it's on social media or, you know, you go over to China, like the things that you do, again, authentic. And it's not like some of the athletes you can tell like, oh, they dragged this guy there. He didn't want to be there with you. I'm like, he's into this. And it just it. I think it represents the company that you're representing well because you can tell. The other thing, too, that has changed in the last year or so, um, the NBA lifted the the requirement. Like, your shoes can be any yeah. color now. And I know you that you... whatever story you want. Right. That's been, that was the most fun thing about the shoes. I was like, okay, now I don't have to, like, hide behind these colors. I can tell stories through the shoes and literally wear them. And it don't have to match the uniform. So that was big. Um but like this, like you said, like people, when they activate and they do all this stuff, you got to drag them there because it's not in line with who they are. Mm -hmm. So it's, it doesn't really make sense to do it. And a lot of the stuff that I do, I'm not just showing up because they like, okay, we paid you. So this is something that you have to do is like, it matches up with stuff that I'm interested in, stuff that I care about. So it's not like, a hassle. Yeah, I get tired sometimes. I'm like, yeah, I don't really feel like going. But once I get there and it's <laughs> stuff that I care about, like, I'm going to want to be there. I'm going to treat the situation as if I want to be there because it's stuff that I care about. So I think that's that's the difference in people signing up to partner with people that have the same things in mind and people who just like, they paying me what? They going to pay for this? Okay, let's do it. Right. And then when it's time to take action, they like, they don't really want to do it because it's not something that's in line with how they feel. How cool is it for you? Adidas is right here in Portland, the North American headquarters. So you can go meet with their team. You can be part of the creative yeah. process. I would think that would be a big advantage for you with them and obviously for them with you to produce a product that is really representative of yeah. what you both want to put out there. I mean, it's, it's perfect for me because, because of like the communication. If it's something they need to talk to me about, like they can find me. If it's something they need me to come see, it's not like they gotta wait till I come play here. Like I literally have had times where they like, Dame, um, whenever you got time, we got a shoe that we want you to see. We need you to test it or whatever, or we got some new colorways or whatever. And I'd be like, all right, I'll be there in 20 minutes. <laughs> They're like, what? And they'd be like, right now? I'd be like, yeah, I'm gonna come in 20 minutes. And I go up there, we meet, and I look at all this stuff and then while I'm there, I walk in and they got another meeting about apparel and they like, oh, damn, you here. What you think about this? And mm -hmm. I end up sitting in there and I'm like, I don't really like that. I would rather do this. So it's like, that's really helpful. It's, it's really helpful, like, with us both being here. A few more things. Uh, Space Jam 2 reports are that you're part of the movie. I don't know how much you can talk about it or not. Um, if you can't talk about it, just... I can't say much, but I'm in it. <laughs> okay. That's cool. I mean, that's got to be exciting. For, uh, you know, it was 23 years ago. I can say that because it was a picture. Somebody uh, snuck a picture of us on set. So okay, I'm not telling y'all nothing that the world don't know already. All right. Jimmy Goldstein's house. <laughs> I saw that setup. That was pretty cool. Um, Dame time. It's become universally 
known. You're not only the guy that wants the ball in your hands at the end of the game, but you actually come through. Because there's a lot of guys that want the ball at the end, but they don't actually come through. And the other thing that I think makes it even harder is like everyone knows about Dame time now yeah, too. Like so they it's know a little harder now. Yeah, he's taking the shot. So it's a little harder than it used to be now. They just, I don't know. It's now like when the clock is running down. Sometimes they just run two people and make me pass the ball. Uh, just different junk defenses, like they just do it different. Uh, I thought it was like it became a thing in Portland where everybody was like Dame time right. and all this stuff. Um, but I think once it, it became like a, a national thing after we beat the Rockets in the playoffs and then after um, this year, it just – after this year, it really was like it took off. Yeah, you, you kind of changed the fortune of a franchise with that uh... – that shot. Uh, last question. What can I say? That was <laughs> that was for Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Fatherhood, uh, baby Dame. How has fatherhood changed your perspective on things? Um, just how careful you got to be sometimes. Just you know, I think you as a as an athlete, we just, I get so caught up in. I need to go work out. I need to go do this. I got to go here and speak here. I, you got to do so many things that is like, it consumes you. You know, it's like, this is all you doing. And then you look up and it's been three weeks and I haven't spoke to my grandmother. And then I haven't talked to my dad in two weeks. Like you mm -hmm. just start going, going, going. And then like, since I had my son, like it makes me slow down where I'm like, I'm not going to be a dad that's, my son can't talk to and that my son don't see every day before he go to sleep and when he playing that he can't play with me and stuff like that so that made me slow down and now that I'm slowed down I'm like me and my dad talking all the time like I'm not missing those windows that I would like the last few years I'm like going all these amounts of time without like my mom go out of town and we don't talk the whole time she out of town stuff like that so it just it slowed me down like it just make me kind of manage my time better because I'm I'm not rushing here and rushing there as much. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to sit down with me. Continued success to you. You're truly an inspiration on and off the basketball court. Thank so you. thank you. Thank you. Hey everyone, Brian Berger here. You might have heard my conversation with Nate Chackets, the co-founder and CEO of Roan a few weeks ago on Sports Business Radio. If you missed it, definitely check it out. Roan is the new official menswear partner of Sports Business Radio. I love their product. I've been a fan for a long time. Did you know David Stern was one of their first investors? Roan makes the absolute highest quality, best fitting, and most comfortable performance-driven clothing for men. Their entire line places emphasis on an active, balanced and purpose-driven lifestyle. I'm wearing my spar joggers. I've got them in uh, heather gray. I've got them in navy. I've got my moleskin commuter slim pant. I've got my regular black commuter pant. I've got my dress shirts. So when I'm out in in-person meetings, I have the nicer Roan product to wear. But most of the time, I'm working from home. And I've got my rain long sleeve gray heather camo. I've got my rain long sleeve hoodies. 
I am wearing the shorts for workouts, the seven inch Mako shorts. So I'll tell you what, from top to bottom, whether it's casual or business wear, Roan has me covered. I know they're going to have you covered too. And Roan is offering Sports Business Radio podcast listeners 15% off your purchase. Go to Roan.com, R-H-O-N-E.com and enter code SBR15 at checkout, like Sports Business Radio 15, SBR15 at checkout. Receive 15% off your purchase. That's Roan.com, R-H-O-N-E.com and enter promo code SBR15 at checkout. Now, here's Brian's interview with Baron Davis from December 2014. I want to bring to the stage a man that is very familiar to everyone here at UCLA, a two-time all-star in the NBA, uh, had an illustrious career. Here he is, Baron Davis, give him a hand. Have a seat. Thank you. Is the mic on? Uh-oh. The mic is on, yep. Uh-oh. How's everyone? I like your shoes. <laughs> They're Kobe's. Nice. What size? This uh, 13. 13? I was told I was supposed to wear a suit, but, you know. Was, this is your version of a suit. This is my version of a suit. <laughs> nice. Uh, it rained yesterday, so it was just like, I, you know, I got a chance to go in my closet and but it, it was sunny today. So I live in I live in Portland. That's where it really rains. I'm walking around downtown Westwood today, and people have UGG boots on. Yes, absolutely. You think it's going to snow here? It is. Like, <laughs> the fear of. Yeah. So talk about some of your favorite memories here at UCLA. I know you've got a lot of fond memories of this place. Yes. Uh, I, 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 rem- I, I would say it first started when I was um, in eighth grade. Seventh and eighth grade, I would come up here and just play basketball randomly on the outside courts, which is, I don't know what it is now, but there were some outside courts like 20 years ago when I was here at UCLA. Um, and, you know, just being here and sneaking in to watch the men basketball team perform mm-hmm. or like, you know, sitting at the top of the, uh, at Drake and watching the track, you know, the track people do their things. And like every year it felt like I got closer and I got closer. My sister started working here. Uh, I would come up here every day and just kind of like live like a student. I was, I think I was a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. But after school was out, I'd come to UCLA and just, you know, hang out like I was one of you guys. Yeah. You know, so it was just like always um, for me like a special place because it was home. And I felt like, you know, I had already felt the sense of pride. So when I got here, it was just more so like establishing my roots. And I knew that I wasn't going to be here for long. So I was just like really trying to like meet everybody that I can, like, you know, and and just trying to make a lot of friends because I knew that my college experience was going to be, you know, accelerated because, you know, of basketball. So you knew that coming in. You kind of said, I'm on the I'm on the short plan and it's just going to be a few years and then I'm going to take advantage of going to the NBA. No, I was actually on the long plan. And then after uh, I would say after my freshman year, when I hurt my knee, it was just like, you know, the NBA is my goal. So the first opportunity I get, you know, I have to get out of here and, and get to the NBA because I didn't know how long that I would last. Like people didn't even think that I would come back from my injury my freshman year. So when I came here, it was like, all right, I'm going to stay four years. This is going to work. My grandmother's going to get education. I'm going to graduate with these guys. And then after the first year, I was like, dude, I just need to get in shape. I need to go. <laughs> like, we're going to be broke, dude. I made it this far. It was just like, you know, it was more of a sense of urgency. 
in college, I had people who influenced me. Who were some of the people that influenced you here at UCLA? Um, that's a good question. See? That was a really good question. Uh, I had a couple of classes. I would say intro to jazz, history of rock and roll. Uh, I had a class on Paul Robeson that was here. And for me, it was just like now being in entertainment and um, or wanting to be in entertainment mm -hmm. uh, you know, until I... I haven't done anything yet. <laughs> but, we'll talk uh, about that in a minute. You're, you're getting there. I mean, hopefully. <laughs> um, but those classes kind of like spark my creativity. And, you know, in, in college I learned that, you know, it's really all about research. Like what you research and, and what you spend your time on. You can make good grades. But for me it was just like I needed to, I needed to know what I, what I wanted to know. One, to prepare me for the next part of my life. And two, the things that I was going to need in order to, you know, deal with this other world in basketball. Now, that part, I didn't, you know, that's economics mm -hmm. and the math and the classes that you actually have to go to, right. to you know what I mean? To yeah. really to understand, yeah, to graduate and understand, like, what these numbers mean. So right. I didn't spend as much time with that, but I was more, like, into the electives and the creative classes. And, I, and that really, like, sparked a lot of things and then history became a part of it because the you know history repeats itself and all these incredible stories that you can just dig out and research you know to bring things to life one of the things that's so interesting about you is you're you're really a social chameleon you you know, obviously grew up in South Central Los Angeles, but you, I saw recently you had the opportunity to meet Norman Lear. Yeah. Um, you hang out in all these different crowds. You seem like a guy who enjoys lots of different diverse interests. Yeah, I, 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 I guess I study people. I just love people. You know, um, coming from South Central Los Angeles and getting an opportunity to go to a school like Crossroads gave me like two ends of a you know of the spectrum it's like the have nots and the haves and like you know what are their conversations and the language and the discussions and you know what are they privileged to that we're not and like what do we have that they don't and it, and from that point i think from the time i was like 13 14 years old from that point everything was about uh just meeting the right people, and every time I met somebody, it was is something funny going on right here. I, I, I'm look, everybody's like looking behind me. What is going on in the back? See, they're tweeting stuff. Oh, and, then, oh, and they're, they're like tweet. looking at each other, like high five. Stuff comes right, up. Look, I just put that up there. My producer, who's way back there, uh, first trip to In and Out today. So as oh, soon wow. as we landed, it's like 10:30 in the morning. We're going to In and Out. So he could, he could have his first uh, in that. <laughs> it's the best, man. It is pretty good. It is. So when you're looking to get involved in projects, what are the elements that you have to see with a project for you to get involved? Um, I, I would say, one, it's, uh, it's the passion behind it. So the people and the passion that they have for it. Um, I was, one, if I can connect to it. Mm -hmm. If I can find you know, some some real organic way of connectivity that I can connect or maybe someone in my wheelhouse mm -hmm. can connect to it. And then I think that it becomes, you know, who that person is and what they're passionate about and like, you know, how, how versed they are and what they're talking about. And then, um, you know, third, which is probably the most important, is just doing the due diligence. But at right. that point, it's like, if you make it past that phase, I pass it off 
to people who will, you know, do the due diligence work and think different things like but that. But it still comes down with, with athletes and celebrities, people are throwing opportunities yeah. at you all the time. How do you learn to trust? And how did you develop an instinct that says, this is the right person to trust and maybe this is something I want to stay away from? Um, you know, because I'm, I'm one of those people. You know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the person that's always like pitching new ideas and like, oh, I'm starting this company and I hadn't really like started the company yet. But it's <laughs> like, it's here. So, you know, when you run into a lot of people like that, you kind of like, because you, you have so much going on, you can kind of tell when someone else does too. So, you, you know, you, you've already like sifted through the bullshit. Mm -hmm. And um, at that point, it usually becomes an introduction from somebody who, you know, like, I like to gravitate to people who are really well-versed and passionate and talented in their space. Mm -hmm. And so that usually comes through introduction and different things like that. Seems like during your playing career, there's a lot of athletes, they're just, you know, kind of head down playing during their career. There are other athletes, I look at someone like Magic Johnson, I know you're close with him, that during their career, they say, you know what, I'm going to prepare for my life after my mm -hmm. career. I'm going to take advantage of meeting the people that I can meet during my career. It seems right. like you did a really good job of doing that. Yeah, I, I just I decided uh, I decided I think in my third year that you know, hey, I'm not I'm from LA and I'm not going to be Magic Johnson. I'm not going to be one of these guys who's you know hanging banners and have you know championship rings. It's, you know, my path is probably not going to end up like that. Mm -hmm. I'm in Charlotte right now. We're <laughs> like, you know, hopefully we make the playoffs. Right. You know what I mean? Like. The owner is not, you know, Shaq's not coming here. Like, so it's, you know, it's just like you got to work with what you have. And so from that point, it was just like every year when I came back home, I wanted to, you know, intern. I was like for like eight years, I was so big. I'm like, hey, I'm going to intern over here. And hey, who are you? I'll come intern with you. And I just started like really just like. Who'd you intern with? Uh, I, I interned with a real estate company. Uh, I... Uh, I mean, shit. It's, it's <laughs> a lot so of people. Long. It was you know, um, a financial a financial services company. Okay. Um, I, I I interned at, at like a digital branding company, um, a digital media company. I interned at. It was just like whoever had an intern. I was like, hey, you want? But it was like two days, you know, because like my mind is just like. Like, yeah, this is cool. Like, oh, I got to wear a suit? Oh, all right. Obviously. What's the next one? No, but I remember my first internship. I was just like, hey, you know, you meet these guys, and, you, you know, Magic has the book, and it's like, you know, meet these guys on the front row and get to know them and get mm -hmm. to know their business. And I'm like, all right, you know, cool. I'm 24, 25. And I'm like, you know, I'm Baron Davis. I can, I'm, it's the summertime. I'm, I pretty much do what I please at my leisure. You right. know what I mean? <laughs> And so I was like, yeah, I got this, you know, this internship. And I was just like, all right, we're going to go. And, and, and it probably started at, like, the meeting started at 1. I walk in at, like, 1.45. Like, thinking, like <laughs> people are going to stand up and start, like, clapping like he's here. Uh, and, like, everybody's in the suit. And they're looking at me like, what the hell is he doing here? And I'm like, oh, shit. And, like, my hair was nappy. Yeah, I had a T-shirt. And at that point, I was like, I probably need to get my act together if I don't want to start walking into these rooms. And from that point, I was just like on time with a suit on. And even if I loved it, you know, if I didn't and felt like I didn't connect to it, I still gave them the proper respect. And then I just learned to like, I learned to figure out like what, what my niche was. Mm -hmm. 
You were the beard before James Harden was the beard. <laughs> Tell me about the branding of Baron Davis and the beard. And you know, I've seen the leaning shirt with the beard, which uh -huh. I, I really liked as t-shirts. But if you were going to use some adjectives to describe your brand and why you have the beard and the whole look, I, do, I, is I have it, no, I, I have no way of describing it. So you just are. You no, roll out was, of bed and. No, I, I and before the beard, I'd never had a beard before in the NBA. I had a goatee or like, you know, I was clean shaven and I got hurt. And so I was, you know, I was watching hockey and they were like, oh, you know, all the hockey dudes grow their beard. I was like, yeah, shit, I want to grow my beard out. I want to see what I look like. And then when I, you know, when we started making that run, these guys came up with a, um, a blog called Fear the Beard. Right. And like, that's how it really, you know, that kind of how it really like took off and I became like you know the beard and it was like oh shit like I don't really wear a beard it's the summertime dude I need to people were like where your beard I was like I cut it off dude and they were like no you're the beard and so that became kind of like my next evolution of of what I consider my brand was to like take this take this beard and something that and it, and for me it was more so at that point in my career it was like I don't want to be famous you know, it's like, I, I'm not really into the whole fame thing, but there's a place, you know, a little bit farther called China where I don't mind whoring my brand out. So I'm going to create <laughs> because, you know, there's 350 million basketball fans. And what we met, right. you know, we met uh, at a Steve, Steve Nash Yao Ming charity event in Beijing, China. And that was the first time um, that was right after the playoffs, after right. the beer thing. So yeah. that was the first time I, you know, I'm in China, and there's fifteen thousand people like following you. Know, imagine like Crazy. being on campus and fifteen thousand <laughs> people just following you. You're turning around, they're like flashing cameras. I was like, oh shit, like I'm a rock star here, dude. I was like, I don't mind being a rock star here and like in LA, you know, just like trying to remain authentic. And so. Um, the beard became a cartoon character because I didn't. I, I don't necessarily feel like some people may like me, some people may not like me. But you know, if I create something that's kind of cool, that's not going to stop them from you know liking a product. So then the beard became this kind of like cartoon figure, mm -hmm. um, video game character, and you know that kind of lived on its own for a moment in time. Let's talk about that trip to China because, you know, I remember it was your first trip, Steve's first trip, I think Carmelo's first trip. Yeah. And the reaction, it was my first trip. And six times as many people, you know, like you said, people just following you everywhere. I remember we had... It wasn't just me, but it was like Steve Nash, Carmelo. But, you know, of course. I'm but wherever like, they 15, went... 15,000 people were yeah. following me. But it was a group of us walking through the mall. Do you remember there was a bus on the way to the game, the charity game, police escort still yes. couldn't get through the traffic. I remember a girl, like we were, I remember sitting on the bench and this girl had a Steve Nash jersey and he ran out and she was like behind, you know, behind people and she was just like bawling like, oh my God, Steve Nash is like so close. And like you see her the whole game and she's just like, oh my God, I have to like, and, and there's cops, there's cops like clearly like lined up in front of her. And she was just determined to, like, I need to touch him. And she jumps over the cops. And you see the cop go, 
boom. And it was like a hundred cops attacked this one little girl. It was the craziest uh, thing. I, you know, I was like, damn, this is a communist country. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> so I'm like tapping Steve Nash, like, yo, dude, walk over there and do something. And he starts to walk towards the girl and the cops like grab him. And he was like, no, I want to like tell her it's okay. But it was like, it was crazy. Like, that's like the type of, you know, that's the type of love that the fans have for you. And, you know, in China, there's, um, they, you know, the personal space. So it was all different. It was just yeah. like, you know, it, you, like you really felt like a rock star. I mean, we all felt like rock stars. People, I didn't, but you, you know. <laughs> you were with us. Yeah. You got the police escort, too. I, I, I did. You know? I was on the bus. Like, yep. Yeah. No, that was fun. But I just remember, like, how you and Steve and Carmelo, like, talking on the bus and, mm -hmm. and how eye-opening this trip was. And you guys are like, we got to come back here. And we got to right. do business here. And this is a great market. And, you know, I kind of felt like this is United States circa 1970. Like, it hasn't been right. tapped yet. There's six right. times as many people. And obviously... And that was really the I would I would say, like, that was the first time that there was a tour like that right. with NBA players. Right. Now Nike, yep. Adidas, beforehand, they never sent players to China and really, like, valued that opportunity. And I think that the NBA took advantage of it with Yao Ming, but no players had really went over there and t taken advantage of it. And I found out about China through Damon Jones who was wearing Lee Nicks. Right. And Damon Jones was like, had an article in the Wall Street Journal and he comes to the gym in the summer. He's like, yeah, fool, none of y'all. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> I'm in the Wall Street Journal. I was like, man, what? Like, for what? <laughs> like, what do you do? He was like, you know, I signed this deal with Lee Ning and I was just like, let me see those shoes. I was like, those shoes are ugly, dude. Those shoes are terrible. Give me a pair. Yeah. You know? like, and I start supporting him and then... When my Reebok deal, you know, I was like in the last year and a half of my mm -hmm. Reebok deal. And I was like, damn, Damon Jones, Wall Street Journal. Hmm, Nike is probably not going to renegotiate right. the way that I want. So, hmm, I'm going to go, if they gave him that, then imagine what they'll give me. And like, that's, I was like, and I'll go to China and, you know, do, you know right. have all these big dreams and ambitions and. You know, they still haven't really come to fruition, but <laughs> <laughs> they're there. Do you the go back? There. I do. Okay, how I often? do. Uh, not as often as, as I was when I was with Li Ning. Mm -hmm. When I was with Li Ning, it was uh, two, two times a year ten, for at least 10 days. Okay. Wow. Uh, and it was like 22-hour days you're working. It's yeah. like, hey, you're... They're getting their money's yeah, worth. Yeah. You're in L.A. <laughs> and you're, fly, you're driving to Boise, Idaho... And you're going to do a mall appearance. And then oh. you're going to drive another 16 hours yeah. somewhere else. And you're going to do a mall appearance. And then you're going to drive four hours. And you're going to do a mall appearance. Yeah. And it was just like, you know. It, and I was like, dude, I'm not, you know, I'm not really cut out for this. I've always wondered with a company like Leaning, not to, to slight them, but when you're looking at a deal with them, how do you weigh the, okay, this is a great financial deal versus this is a shoe that I need to make sure allows me performance yeah, on the court, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's the gift and the curse. You right. know, it's like you, you go with a, a, a unestablished performance brand mm -hmm. over a brand. You know, you get hurt, you get hurt. That's the chances, but you never expect the performance to be that off because the myth is everybody makes their shoes in the same factory. Right. But not everybody has the same, like, designers and technicians. You know what I mean? Right. But, and your shoes are custom. I mean, you're and, not... Yeah. Your Mine shoes are, are custom, different than the ones yeah. that we buy. But 
but when I went and did the Li Ning thing, they, they hadn't really figured out performance shoe. So, I, you know, for me, it was like, I'm going to treat this as, you know, a real joint venture because someday I want to, you know, I want to have my own sneaker and I want to design and, you know, I have visions of designing and creating, you know, a sports-inspired brand. So this is a great opportunity for me to have a partnership with a brand that's going to, one, pay me to wear it and also pay for the marketing of this idea that I create. Right. So for me, it was it was a win-win situation knowing that I was coming up on, you know, a little bit of my prime in the tail end of my career mm-hmm. to be able to have something tangible that if I chose to, you know, if I decided to retire or whatnot, I had a business that I could sustain mm-hmm. and, and a brand that had already had, you know, equity in it. What else do you want to do in China? Um... That's I, I I to be honest, I haven't really figured that mm-hmm. out. Um, you know, obviously China is great with you know manufacturing and manufacturing goods, but I haven't even figured that part out uh, as far as creating a brand. Do you want it to be made in China or do you want it to be made here in the U.S.? It's just you know it's one of those things you struggle with. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as in China, I, I think just. You know, social communication, sports communication, and and trying to tap into you know those fans because you know they're consumers and they con- and they consume at a higher rate than we do over here, and they're passionate buyers, they're passionate fans because they don't really get the culture, they don't get the culture every day. So you know, uh, we're over here, we're spoiled by ESPN, Fox, and you know uh, all the other blogs and different things. Like everybody has like their kind of a la carte moment. And I think in China, you know, being able to consolidate what is special about here and be able to articulate that in China through a brand or, you know, through some type of uh, social communication would be great. I saw, was it in the last six months year, you went over and you met with Yao Ming. Did you know Yao that well before the trip that we did in... in well, just playing against him. Right. But, you know, we played... Uh, but I was like always the guy who was just like I love Yao Ming. So when he first came in the league, I was just like, and I'd be like, Yao, he like, dude, like, he like, what's up? He like, what's up? And I knew that he could speak English. Right. You know, I knew he was funny. Yeah. You know, and and like so I you know I like to crack jokes with him and I'd be mm-hmm. like, yo, yeah, they don't you know just speak Chinese. They don't mm-hmm. understand English. He was like, no, they don't understand English at all. And he would like. You know, he would say funny stuff, so I just kind of gravitated to him. So when we got to the trip, it was already like, you know, I like this guy. Like, mm-hmm. this guy makes me laugh. And and so that's how we, like, really formed that bond. And Steve Nash and I, we were rivals on that trip. And I remember um, flying back. It was a 16-hour flight. Yeah. And uh, we, were on, we were on a private plane. It was like 12 dudes. I wasn't on the private plane. It was like plane. 12 dudes, though. <laughs> we were on a private plane, so dudes were like sleeping on the floor. It was crazy. Uh, but Steve Nash and I stayed awake, and that was mm-hmm. the first time we've ever talked to. That was the first time we ever like sat down as peers and talked mm-hmm. to each other. And we stayed up for like 13 hours, wow. and we talked about film, entrepreneurship, yeah. you know, philanthropy. Uh, the NBA and just China, and, and from that point, like we like really form a cool bond. Yeah, it seems like you guys have a lot of the same yeah. interests. A lot of the same interests. I actually, I'm not gonna say yeah, we're on Twitter and all, but he knows, <laughs> he knows who's the brains behind the operation. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, 
He's the face. I'm, you know, I'm the brains behind the operation. Speaking of the, the brains behind the operation, uh, I read in all the publications lately that uh, Pilot picked up. Yeah. Fox. Yeah, it's pretty tell, cool. Tell me about that. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Let's, you know, let's get it to on air first. Yeah. <laughs> but what's that process? It's like you're like? right there. It's like, oh, you got a pilot picked up. It's like, I want it on TV. You know, it's, uh, the show is loosely based on like my experience as a middle schooler going to a school like Crossroads. Right. And uh, so when I was thinking about the show, I was just like, hey, we need a modern day version of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I don't know if it's <laughs> going to turn out like that. I hope it does. Um, or you do the Carlton? Yeah, I, I would do anything to sell a TV show. No, <laughs> uh, but it's just basically a kid who grows up in South Central Los Angeles who goes to a progressive private school, and he's a jokester and somebody who needs discipline, and he's going to a school that is really like not so keen on discipline. So it's taking the lessons that he learns on this side of town and applying it to his home and his family structure and taking his family structure and seeing like how much he can get away with, you know, in both worlds. So it's a comedy. And You've got good people involved with yeah. the project. So what do you need to do? What are the hurdles between now th- and getting it on the air? Um, you know, everything is in the script, you know. Uh, and at this point, it's just like spending time with the writer, Courtney Lilly, who's a writer on Blackish. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote on uh, Everybody Hates Chris. So, you know, he's a young guy. He's smart. He, you know, he gets it. He, he's been in that type of environment. But you just really have to hammer away on the story. And, you know, for me, it, it's uh, this is the, the first time I'm actually, you know, I've actually sold a show. So to go through the process of, you know, outline, 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 waiting for approval, approve, treatment. Treatment, treatment, treatment. Waiting for it to approve script. So it's just like taking all these baby steps. But it's but I've learned to I've learned how to develop story and how to like you know figure out what the network wants, how to how to remain some integrity, and also how to you know give up a lot of what you think is you know your story because the writer basically has to adapt what everybody is saying and what everybody wants and and, and formulate it into you know, their own perspective. So, you know, it's like a, it's like a, you know, pull, you grab and pull. Right, right. We were talking earlier how you met uh, Norman Lear Mm -hmm. not too long ago. Who are some other people in the industry that you admire? Maybe some shows. Hey, that's one of my favorite shows. And yeah, uh, Norman Lear, he was great. I met him at a, a, a a fundraiser for uh, a politician, Prophet Walker. So how many know who Norman Lear is? Raise your hand. Oh, we need to do some education here. So, uh, a lot of young folk in the room. Uh, All in the Family, Good Times, The Jeffersons, Jeffersons. Maud. What else? Um, you said The Jeffersons, Good yeah. Times. Yeah. Those are all the ones I know, All yeah. in the Family. Yeah. I mean, he was really like the pioneer as far as like, if the, in, in this day and time, he would come with the sitcom that address ish, like real issues and things that we're going through as youth and, and as an, you know, as a country. And I, mm-hmm. you know, he dealt with race in a very, very intelligent way. He dealt with sexism in a very intel- intelligent way. And, um, you know, like meeting him, it was, it was good to just sit there and be like, yo, like I'm like that much closer. It's almost like when I went here at UCLA and in the summertime you go and see 
Magic Johnson working out, and you're like, shit, I want to work out down here. And it's mm-hmm. like you're so close, and and, and you just want to like, you know, a- absorb as much knowledge as you possibly can. Are there some other people in the entertainment industry that you can kind of tap into them and say, hey, look, help me now? No, I wish. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I wish. I uh, I kind of uh, I kind of like to do things, you know, just kind of looking from a thirty thousand foot view, mm-hmm. and you know. Why I like why I watch and study people all the time, whether it's you know Will Smith or Jamie Foxx or Judd Apatow and the things that he's doing, or you know the Cohen brothers or you know Adam Sandler. So anytime I'm around somebody, I'm just really like Seth Rogen, and you know it's right. just like I want to see how they operate their system, mm-hmm. you know, and learn what I can to do, you know be able to develop the product, you know, my product the way that I want to. But as far as like being able to tap into somebody and go, you know, you know, I, I realize that when people are like super famous and super rich, like they're not so keen to help, you know, to really help you. They just want to hear themselves talk. So, really? you know, the, the most important thing is to find the people who know what they're doing and right. who are willing to do the work because, you know, they bought the people who've done it. They've already done it. So why do they want to share that with you? It's you know it goes back to, you know, kind of like my Magic Johnson thing. He's so busy doing what he's doing that you know he's not he has no time to really mentor me. Mm-hmm. It's just like you know everything is 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 more so like a vanity play and you know celebrities hanging out with celebrities and maybe you get an introduction or something like that. But for me, it's like I rather deal with the people who are like the future and the right. next and who's actually doing it because I gain more out of that and I gain a, a natural and, a, and an organic experience because I get to see somebody like go through the proper step, you know, go through their channels and their evolution to become successful mm-hmm. instead of like just trying to partner with another celebrity, right. you know. Do you have UCLA athletes or just athletes in general that reach out to you and say, hey, Mentor yeah. me, or I want to pick your brain. And Aaron Aflalo and I, we talk, we talk business a okay. lot. He's very smart, uh, UCLA graduate. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, he's really smart. We talk a lot of business. We talk about a lot of business stuff. Earl Watson and I, we talk mm-hmm. a lot, a, a lot, um, a lot of business stuff. But you know, I'm, I now I've become like you know what they consider like OG. You know, like <laughs> OG, big homie. Like I need to talk to you. So. It's been it's it's super cool to to be able to you know be called upon by some of these younger guys and like yo I'm into this and mm-hmm. you know I get guys all the you know from like the craziest things like hey man I, you know I want to open up a donut shop I'm like all right cool like I'm probably not the person to talk to but like I, like Dave Bing owns you know a, a ton of Wendy's okay. and Jamal Mashburn owns seventy five Papa Johns so mm-hmm. you know probably more than that but like. My, I've kind of made my business to understand and know like what all the NBA guys are doing, you know, current and retired, and like really keep myself abreast of like what the landscape is and right. what guys are into. So as I continue to formulate, you know, my business and my company, be of service to them, knowing that you know there. Are, some people are going to make some mistakes and I can help people avoid a lot of those mistakes. Yeah, and I'm sure they appreciate that. Yeah, and it's all about like, hey, he, you know, you want to open up a restaurant? This guy owns 50. Don't talk to me. Talk to, you know, right. talk to him. Right. 
What is it with restaurants, clothing companies? Got to. You have to. Like you have to. That's it. Why? You gotta eat and you gotta dress, so it feels like you know. And it's like, hey, my taste buds are the best. Like my mom cooks the best food. Everybody should have this, and it's 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 you know it's entertainment. It's a part of entertainment. It's a part of like showmanship, and you know there's all you know now in social media and. You know, in tech and in entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. everybody has an opportunity to do it. So now it's just like, I got a clothing line. Hey, I got a clothing line too. I got a clothing line. You know, I got a restaurant. I'm over to a restaurant. I can sell food on the internet. So it's just like, you know, it's everybody wants to kind of like figure out, you know, what we were talking about backstage is, mm-hmm. you know, your brand. And, and 75% of what your brand is is bullshit. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it's like, you have Instagram, you have Twitter, so you can sell. You can sell. You can oversell yourself, you know, each and every day, and people people can buy into whatever, you know, whatever you're doing. I like how you use social media. On on, I follow you closely on Facebook and on Twitter and, and Instagram, and you know, like what was it a few days ago? Hey, it's the Thriller 30th anniversary, or 31st. <laughs> you know, like. You're not always out there selling something. Right. Look at me. Hey, look what I'm right. doing. It's it's just like pop culture stuff. It's fun stuff. Yeah. I think people like to take a glimpse inside your life every once in a while. But you post some good stuff up there. Like, do you have a strategy, or do you just kind of wake up? No, and it's just like it, it's, it, it becomes like a part of my personality. It's almost like a relationship, and it's like. Oh, I'm done with Twitter, dude. I delete, you know, I, I delete the app. I'm, like, I'm not tweeting for two weeks. I can't stand, can't stand these people. I can't. But it's really like you can't stand yourself. And you know, I just like when I want to vent. You know, I try not to go to Twitter, but it's just like it's just so easy to you know put your thoughts out in the stratosphere. So for me, it's just more so, you know. I, when I wake up, like that's my news feed. So mm-hmm. when I find something cool, or you know, if I'm thinking about, hey, I need to have a relationship with a writer or a producer, I will like tweet funny stuff mm-hmm. that they've done. Like, yo, this shit is dope. Like, everybody check it out. And they're like, oh, thanks. And like, hey, man, follow me back. I got to talk to you about <laughs> yeah. something. But it, so it's a good way to do business. It's a good way to like get your perspective out, and you know. But it can all, you know, at a lot of times it can also hurt you. Uh, just not too long ago, I was, um, the whole Ferguson thing came up. And, you know, as a black man, you feel obligated, like, I, you know, you burn, you feel obligated right. to say something. And, you know, to be honest, like, I have, my views are just like, probably not in agreement with, you know, 90% of the country, but I, you know, it was just like, at this point, you know, I think everybody should just pray for this dude's family because they're going through a lot of stress and no matter what the verdict is, you know, this is going to like affect a lot of people. But right now we should be praying for his family instead of like putting all this pressure for, from him. So like, let's take the time to be selfless. And I put RT now. And then I put hashtag like, you know, pray for the Brown family and people tweeted me back like, whoa, you're talking about being selfless. Why do you want us to retweet you? And I was like, no, I meant right now, dude. Like, yeah. and it's just like that language gets, you know, messed up. And then, I, you know, my next tweet was like, you know what? F you and F you guys. And like, I, I just want you guys to do something. Positive. You know, it's just it's just weird. So I have to stay away from that. I got in trouble because, 
you know, I was mad at my, my fantasy football. And, you know, I saw the Raiders lost 52 to zip. And I was, like, pissed off because I love the Raiders. And, and I was like, you guys should just quit. And it's like, damn, dude, what if the owner saw that? He's my homeboy. I'll never get a ticket to the Raider game again. It's just like, no more yeah, I'm done. I'm done with Twitter for a week. So that's, like, how my Twitter life is. It's, like, as productive as unproductive. It's just, like, it's just all the random versions of me. And I and for me, it's, like, either you like me or you don't. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't care. I'm not, you know what I mean? It's right. just, like, I vibe with the people that I vibe with and that vibe with me. And, like, we share information. And, you know, I'm just like anybody else. I'm moody. I don't like taking pictures. You know what I mean? I you want to take a selfie, it depends. If I'm on campus at UCLA, of course. If I'm at SC, like, no. Don't fucking yeah, get away. See? Get away from me. No. <laughs> but it's got to be hard. Like, I've had some athletes share with me their notifications and the messages that they get. And you've got to have thick skin. I mean, there are some idiots out there who yeah, can yeah, say some... It's, you know, it, it, it's become something that people can hide behind walls. So... You know, uh, I always talk to my my friends and like, dude, I'm gonna create this person on Twitter that's just like, you know, like you can create anybody, you can be anybody you want. And so a lot of people, you know, cyber bullies and all, you know all that different garbage, like people just hide behind masks. And now mm-hmm. you can say whatever you want. And there are people in the world who, you know, still don't have anything going on in their lives, and their mission is to spark reactions, right? Trolls, and, yeah. So, you know, like, because I don't play basketball anymore, I don't have to deal with a lot of it. Right. You know, which is kind of cool. But when, you know, when you play, you have to deal with with fans who love the game just as much as you do and think that you don't, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, oh, you suck. And, and, you know, they want to attack you and you want to defend yourself because you don't want to suck. Right. You know, but it's also, you're like, dude, I want to beat your ass because you don't know (laughs) how much hard work I put into it. And, um you know, it's just, it's it's uncomfortable because every time you say something, you can be judged. But, you know, that's that's just the society and the world that we live in now. Like, everything that you say, you know, is up for, ju- you know, for public judgment mm-hmm. when it shouldn't be. Right. So you're a, a digital guy. What do you think of uh, Jeter's new Players' Tribune and, and kind of the direct... I didn't see that. So he started this this <laughs> blog where, like, you know, guys basically just they'll write a column, uh-huh. and so instead of doing interviews, like some of the reporters are up to, hey, you should be talking to me, and right. it, it gives them another platform in addition to mm-hmm. their Twitter and, and Facebook feeds to write something like maybe that. a little more in depth, more personal and, and personal. Uh, and a lot of times, like you know, it's just like the whole reporting thing is mm-hmm. it's just sort of being lost because the newspapers, the magazines, you're not. You know, you're not waiting for, oh, Kobe just got 30,000 and six assists. Like, you know that happened. I know that happened. Everybody tweeted about it. Mm -hmm. So when it's time for the magazine article to come out, you know, what what is he really going to say? Like, what is he going to say that we've passed that moment? And times are moving so fast that I think reporters and reporting is just like, you have your own, you have your own vice. You have your own outlet. So a lot of guys, you know, want to really use that platform to like speak you know speak to their own creativity Mm -hmm. or say how you know how they feel or how they truly feel when you look at the lebron sports illustrated article Mm -hmm. and like a couple other the jason collins 
uh, article. It was more so in dictation. You know, it's like an athlete sitting down with a reporter and dictating to them the message that they want to get across. So, you know, I think that it'll it'll start being more and more of that. And mm -hmm. you know, the new sport. That's that's why podcasts and things like that are so important because you have to now you have to be a a smart writer, but you also have to have perspective and some somebody that people want to buy into. Yeah. Digital. Where is it going? I mean, you know, you kind of just talked about that a little bit, but I think a lot of people trying to figure that out and it yeah. still feels it's, kind of like the wild west, doesn't it, it? Yeah, it is. It's um it's interesting. It's it's, it's really interesting. I mean, just being in a space is is so many opportunities and people are you know, really getting smart and finding old thing, you know, old things that were were products or tangible things, and, and and reinventing them and introducing them into the digital space. I am a big fan of content and content curation, mm -hmm. and being able to create story and message, and like figuring out the platform to deliver that. You know, um, how everything. You know, for me, it's ten years ago you know, movies or things was broken up into a, a genre, you know, right. there's urban, there's horror, there's, you know, uh, comedy, life, you know, lifestyle, there's high fashion, there's low fashion. Now there's the hipsters, you know, everything is broken down into subgenres, and these subgenre cultures are really like the ones that are kind of leading the charge. So they're dictating what's happening in traditional media. Mm -hmm. And now you're CNNs and, you know, the ESPNs, they're, you know, they're late to the party. Yeah. So I think that um, where the digital, there, there has to be some type of, you know, middle platform or middle game where you're able to kind of capture and filter this content and still distribute it as a network, but, you know, in a more defined and kind of boutique and subgenre specific way. What do you think of the NBA's... Uh Recent deal, $24 billion. That was amazing. I mean... I didn't get any of it. <laughs> <laughs> but what do you think Hopefully. happens now? You know, you can already kind of tell the tenor of what's going to happen in a few years. You, you know, it looks like players, if I'm them, I'll opt out, right? And, yeah. and say, let's renegotiate this. You've got a lot more money than you did the last time we did this deal. Well, it, it, that's the that's what the public wants the players to do, you know what I mean? The public wants the players to opt out and say like, hey, you know, we need now. You guys got all this money now. We need more money, mm -hmm. and that, I think that was the problem with the last lockout. Is it's it's not it's it's played up here, you know? Who's on the player side? They make too much money. Oh, the owners are losing money now. It's like oh, the owners. They're not actually not losing money. Right. They're making a lot of money, and well, they're still getting paid a lot. But you guys should, have, you know, it's just when when you get down deep inside, when you start looking at the collective bargaining agreement and like how it can elevate, you know, both sides. I think that a lot of the negotiations and a lot of the pressure from the media and the outside influences never allows for that you know, that deal, you know, it's going to always be a lockout because mm -hmm. I feel that the media pressure is going to force the, you know, the force the players or force the union to do something that they don't want to do. And, and for me, it's like when you see, if I'm, if I'm the union and I see that, 
I know that, you know, there's a better deal to take place without having to sacrifice, you know, raising your hand and be like, oh, you, you know, it's just like, okay, you got that. We got that. This is incredible. How do we, you know, maneuver and massage, you know, these next four years in order for both of us to benefit without having to lock out? Mm hmm. Because now they have $24 billion. And you right. want to lock out? Okay, fine. We got $24 billion. Like, we just made money. You guys don't have to play. Right. We're good. Yeah. So, you know, it's almost like you shouldn't now because, you know, they have more firepower, more money, and, you know, you want it. But locking out may not be the best. You should have got what you should have got in the right. last deal. And right. you should have, you know, it's all about seeing what's going to happen in the future. And, and, and in the NBA, if you see it, you know, we were at 60 and now, you know, we're at 50. So, mm -hmm. you know, we have to, like, not think about what's going to happen in two years. We need to be thinking about what's going to happen in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. Because in the next 10 years, there are going to be some, like, digital rights and, you right. know, things like that that are now so much more valuable than television rights, you know, and, and digital advertising and things like that. So as a union and, I, you know, as as player, I don't know why I'm telling you guys this. I should be telling them. But, um, you know, it's important to take value and ownership of the things, of, of your assets mm -hmm. and know what you have and be able to, you know, look four or five years, you know, 10 years out because that's what the owners are doing. How hard is it to get 300 some odd players on the same page. I mean, the owners, a lot fewer owners to get on the same page than, than players. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it is difficult in a sense, but, you know, the way the, way the union is structured and set up, it, it, it makes it easier to kind of manage the 300, you know, mm -hmm. because you're set up with different committees and your reps. It's just really a matter of getting everybody to, like, have that one, you know, that one voice. Mm -hmm. Because during the last lockout, it was just like, you know, you thought the media made it seem like it was over and we were never going to play in the, you know, guys were never going to play in the NBA again. And it was like, oh, shit, dude. Like, what am I going to do? And it's like, I'm going to China. I'm going over. And it's like, no, dude, just sit back. Like, you know, you're going to, we're going to lose some games. We're going to lose some money. But in the bigger, in the bigger picture, you know, have we saved, you know, one or two percentage points of that $24 billion now, you know, has, you know, great, great value. But do some of the guys who are making, like, minimum contracts or near minimum, are they like, hey, we got to get back to playing because I don't not have so, any money yeah, saved? Not so much. It's just, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a mix. You know, it's a lot of guys who have a lot of money that know that, you know, it's their big payday and they're, they're going to take a pay cut. It's just, you know, trying to get everybody to understand and be on the same accord. Um, a lot of the guys who are mid-level guys, they they probably want to sit out because they know that when it goes back, you're going to make the same thing, but you have an opportunity to make more. It's usually the guys who make a lot of money. It's like, yo, I'm in my, you know, this is my year, dog. Like, we can't be sitting out. Like, let's do this shit next year, you know? It's like, no lockout is this year, man. Major League Baseball, you can make as much as you want. There's yeah. No, there's no cap. Do you think that should apply in the NBA? Do you Absolutely. Think Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just, you know, trying to figure out what, you know, what, what are they doing? What are their union doing? What is their union doing that's, you know, building that partnership? Because, you know, the way baseball is set up is you earn your worth. Mm -hmm. And it's up to the team that, you know, to pay or play. 
I mean, Stanton just got $325 Man, million. Dollars. Yeah. I mean, I wish I played baseball. I suck. <laughs> I suck at baseball. Dude, I, I look at guys like Jordan and LeBron and even Kevin Durant, and they're worth so much more than just what you pay them to play basketball. I mean, right. they're affecting the yeah, economy yeah. that they play in. And people are making so much money off right. of them. So to me, like putting a ceiling on that doesn't seem fair for right. those players. Well, especially when there's no ceiling on what the owners can do. And, right. And, and the opportunities that they have are endless. And so, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, I'm – I'm using these guys to build my profile and, and to bring everything to me and in the city. And I, you know, it's almost like the, the Scrooge, Mc, you know, Scrooge McDuck. I want to own all the city and I'm going to use this, you know, my money pot, my gold mine to be able to leverage and get everything I want. Mm -hmm. And I get to pay that like and I'm capped at what I can pay them. So I, I continue to increase my value by just like, you know, doing this and Donald Sterling proved that for 30 years you know 30 years the Clippers sucked and then it was just like you know for three four years they get hot and now it's like hey man yeah all right I'll sell my team for two billion dollars like that's fine yeah yeah I mean it feels like there's not just in the NBA but in sports in general like even the Florida Marlins, until they signed this contract with right. Stan, you know they're running. They're they're basically taking revenue sharing from other teams. Yeah. They're like, hey, I'm going to run this. At right. Yeah. If I, if I, if I stay under budget, right. Then and all these teams are going to go over to compete for a title. They're going to have to pay me. So that's smart. You know, it's smart business if you're not a contender. Mm -hmm. But that's not sustainable, right? I mean, eventually, if you play, if, I mean, if you play the long game, if you wait, if you wait. If you wait and you get that star, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you're in the lottery every year and, like, just so happen you get, you know, three or four draft picks, it could happen. But, it's, it, but then it's, it's more about your management, you know, you know and, and usually owners who try to do that, they don't really know anything about the sport, mm -hmm. so they don't hire the right people mm -hmm. who are great at evaluating talent. And so that's why, like, some t certain teams like just can never get over the hump. But I, he was like, "I told you that." It's, like it, it, it's, 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 yeah. But <laughs> it, for for the Sixers, the, what they what they went and did was they did that. They kind of like, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna suck for the next two or three years, but we're gonna you know earn our worth in the draft, and hopefully we'll be able to have enough money that's attractive for free agents that." You know, we may overpay a little bit, but then you always run that gamble of um, getting somebody who who only has, you know, you're paying, you're giving him a five year deal when he's only really worth two good years, and so a team like Philadelphia will run into that a lot, or they'll get the rookie who is not as good as they thought they were, and, and you know, you're still looking for right. the Blake Griffin or the Anthony Davis, something that you can kind of like throw all your assets around. But it's also, you're creating a losing culture, right? I mean, look at your Raiders right now. They're trying to turn it around, and isn't it hard the more you lose to kind of turn well, that ship around? Yeah, but I think like for someone like the Raiders, they already have, and, and for the Philadelphia 76ers, mm -hmm. there's already a culture there. There's already a fan base there. So 
if you're if you're set up properly, you know, if if you set up properly, then you should be three, four years rebuilding, and you should be right there because you know the X factor is being able to bring people in the building, you know. So if you suck, if you suck, and you're showing like hope and potential, you know, it's like. If the Raiders win three games, you know, this year, and then the next year they win six games, and the mm-hmm. next year is eight, it's like, oh, shit, this is going to be our year. You're selling hope. You're selling potential. So, you know, there's an opportunity for brands like the Sixers who've mm-hmm. been around and have championships, the Raiders who've been around and have championships to kind of, like, turn the table a little bit faster because they can rely on their history. Right. But it's different. But then again, it's different nowadays because, you know, kids don't care. Look at LeBron. He went back to Cleveland. And they have no history, you know. Does LeBron go back to Cleveland if they beat San Antonio? You don't. You can't leave if you're on the verge of four in a row, can you? I, I think he leaves. I think really? he leaves. Yeah, you know, he leaves because he's getting to a point where he's gonna he's gonna peak, and you need to be around that young energy and young talent. And for him, it was like, look, I won my championships in Miami, and I want to do the same thing for my home, you know. And and at the you know, the peak of my career, I feel I have, you know, I think I, I can't really speak for him, but it feels like, you know, he has all of the championship pedigree that he wants to kind of like, you know, shed light on, on, you know, the younger generation or the younger culture that, you know, that that's the way he plays. It's kind of like who he is. So that's why I think he went back to Cleveland. So you came back here and played for the Clippers. How Big much mistake. harder? <laughs> Big mistake. How much harder is it playing in front? Big like mistake. I I read a, a, an interview <laughs> with uh, with LeBron a few days ago, and they were talking about, hey, uh, Cleveland just submitted a bid for the All-Star game. And uh-huh. LeBron's like, man, I hope we don't get it. Well, because should, I'm yeah. going to have even more pressure from people in the hometown wanting things for me if we get the All-Star game here. There's a lot of pressure. Well, Cleveland needs it. You know, they need yeah. some money in that city. So, you know, <laughs> he should be like, hey, hell yeah. It should take pressure <laughs> off of him. <laughs> uh, I forgot. No, but isn't it hard playing in front of your hometown? No, it is. You know, and my situation was different. I left the Warriors, you know, and, and my, you know, for me it was like, damn, I did that with the Warriors. I want to come here mm-hmm. and do this in L.A. because I have, like, all my AAU programs, all my, you know, my friends' kids are growing up playing basketball. So if I can be here and, like, I can inspire these kids, I, mm-hmm. it's just easy for me not to take a flight to drive to South Central, to drive the crossroads and right. just bring, like, you know, for once I have a shot to bring, like, the connectivity back to the to the uh to the city mm-hmm. you know and big ambitions but you know not the right not going into the right situation you right. know yeah not, not the right players or the right support system to really support like you know those ambitious you know wishes yeah and then, and when i got to the clippers they never really had somebody like that it was like no this is gonna be great like they were like, no, this is terrible. It was like, no, it's going to be great. It's like, no, dude, you don't know what you're getting into. I was like, I don't, but this is going to be wonderful. And they were like, no, this is going to be a disaster. And, you know, after about six months, I'm like, oh, shit, dude, this is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to uh, Golden State, you had a lot of great plays in your career, but is there any play that's more talked about than the dunk over Kirilenko in the playoffs? No. I Yeah, it's uh, – I mean, that, I was, that was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it Did was, you just feel like, I mean, you were Superman in that moment? It was, it was crazy because the play before, I laid the ball up, 
And I looked at Carol like, oh, and he looked at me, and, I, <laughs> and like we both laughed. And he was like, dude, like, all right, enough is enough, because we were out by like 20 some points. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and I do the same move again, and I'm gonna dunk on this fool because he's not even like, he's just like, whatever. And so when I did the move, like, you can see him look, and he was like, oh, you're gonna try me. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, I'm about to, and, and I was already off the ground. And when I dunked, I was like, dude, I don't know if I made this, but. <laughs> And I looked around, I was like, oh, shit, like, I didn't really expect, like, this to happen. Yeah. And I had no idea what to do, and I was just like, uh. I mean, that was crazy. I'm in here, you know. So, <laughs> last question for you before we open it up to the, the students that have been kind enough to come and, and ask questions. I know your, your grandmother had huge influence yeah. on you. What are some of the lessons that she taught you? Because, again, you're, you're a well-grounded guy. Mm -hmm. you, you get it. What did she teach you? Stay humble. Mm -hmm. You know, stay humble no matter what. Like, uh, you know, don't get too big for your britches. You know, I, I think I think that was the most important lesson. And and, and always treat people the way you want to be treated. Mm -hmm. You know, never wa never wear wear out your welcome. Uh, you know, it's just all these little things that, for me, is just like taught me the value of people, taught me the value of of self, and like how to be you know how to be okay. You know. When you're, you know, when you're by yourself or when you're alone, like always believe in yourself. Don't spend all your money. You know, it was just like the, it was just things that was just like right. Don't give these people your money. Yeah. You know, it's just like just those things. And um, she was just always. She was like the person who was always there. Like if there was chaos, I didn't. I never really had to talk to her. I just go take a nap, and then I wake up, and she'd be like. You know what? Don't give none of these people your money. You just save your money. I was like, mm -hmm. oh, that was my problem. All right, cool. I won't. You know, and so it was like little things like that. But I think, you know, just stand humble mm -hmm. and you know be a, be as honest as you possibly can is 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 what kind of like I relied on, and and she was a lot like that. You mm -hmm. know, it's great to have someone like that in your life. Yeah, she was amazing. She was great. amazing. Let's open up. We've got a microphone here. We've got. A room full of uh, students. Why don't we have some students step to the microphone and uh, take advantage of having Baron Davis here and ask a question? Come on, don't be shy. Or not. No. State your name if you would. And yes. what you're studying. Or yeah. yeah. Awesome. So uh, my name's Peter Murphy. I'm a student here at Anderson, second year MBA student um, from outside New York, so a transplant to Los Angeles. Thanks for coming, both of you guys. This is awesome. Yeah, thank um, you. My question is about kind of your opinion, Baron, on the perception of the, the old school MBA versus the new school MBA. The new school MBA being guys are friends, they do business together, they choose what teams they want to play on together versus kind of the old school like Chuck, Michael Jordan, they want to go kill each other every night. And you kind of saw the end of that era and the beginning mm -hmm. of this new friendship era. And you seem like a very affable, likable person with a lot of friends. So <laughs> just your opinion of, of that transition and where you come out on it. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I, I guess I'm right in the middle of it. And I think that the reason why it is the way it is today is because of AAU basketball. So it makes it mm -hmm. like, you know, you grow up usually in AAU it was broken down. Like you're in these different regions right. and, it, and you didn't really have access. But I think now all these guys have access to each other and they play AAU basketball, you know, more than they play, you know, they play, these kids play like a hundred games a year. So Crazy. they're all like super cool with each other. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're very friendly. I just think the game has evolved as far as like, there is, there's not a, there's not a lot of survive, like people who are playing to survive. 
you know, these kids are, um, you know, they kind of, it's already set up. Like, I, I like when, when, I, when, we, when I talk to people about the difference between me and Russell Westbrook is, West, you know, Russell, but when, he, when he decided to start playing basketball, he was actually trained as a basketball player. Mm-hmm. So he had certain things that allowed him to kind of, like, accelerate whatever the path and the growth that I had. And then mine also accelerated the path and the growth that someone like Charles Barkley. So th- those guys are a little bit bitter because, you know, they play they played for a, a certain they played for the trophy. I think these guys, they play so much that they're playing because it's fun. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's a different, you know, that's why the teams shoot more threes and they're like, you know, now there's all these stats like, oh, the team who shoots the most threes, you know, is usually going to win, you know, win a certain percentage of games. It's just like it's a it's a certain determination in, in this era and a certain like t- uh, survival mentality to where these guys have been kind of uh, pacified and been nurtured and groomed in this space. So it's not as you know, it's not as serious as it was for, you know. Jordan or Barkley because there can only be one star or two stars. Now, shit, the dude sitting on the bench is a star. He got a hundred Twitter followers and he, you know, a hundred thousand Twitter followers and he's, you know, just as popular um, as, you know, the star player. And, and, and I start to experience that when I got to the Clippers because, you know, I think it was in my second year, you know, uh, Chris Kamen, every time he would just come and like he would look at the stat sheet. And I was like, dude, we lost. Like, why? You know, and he was like, yeah, and Airbnb, and like, yo, I have 14 points, 12, shoot, 50. Per-. And I'm like, huh? Like, what, what? We lost. Like, we lost, dude. Like, I don't, I don't get it. And I start to realize, like, yo, this era is different. They play for stats. They play for percentages. They play for p- plus minus. And they're not playing to win until they, you know, until as you get older, you realize, like, damn, dude, like, this is about to be gone. I need to, you know, try and win. So these kids, they're playing for a different purpose than those guys. Those guys are playing for survival and just to make the team. These guys already know they're going to be pro from the time they're in high school because we all know about them. Good question. Thank you. Who else? Great question. Uh, so my name's Don. I'm a second-year student at the undergraduate of UCLA. And I just wanted to say that I'm a huge fan. I'm a, I'm a really big Warriors fan. All right. And so I have two questions. Um, one, so do you think what you learned at UCLA helped shape what you did after in the NBA? And two, I saw you come back. You know, you're trying to make a comeback last year. Is that still in the works? <laughs> I mean, it was, like, <laughs> it was, like, it was like, a jo- like a joke, I guess. But people were like, yo, we want to see you come back. So... I've been up, I come up here every day now and I'm like shooting and getting in shape and I'm going to try, you know, I'm going to go for it again. Really? But I don't know, I, you know, I just had a kid, so I don't know if like that's really in my cards because it's like, shit, I'm missing my son right now. Yeah. You know, he's only three months, but it's like, you know, damn, I'm a daddy now. Yeah, it's like, I'd much rather do that than be on the road for 14 days, like playing basketball. You know, it's like, I've done that before. So, I mean, it's, it's hard. I'm going to try for it, though, to see if, I, you know, if it's something that I really want to do. And then, absolutely, being here at UCLA, you know, I, I think for me, it was, I had to make a decision when I was in high school. Do I go to Duke and I become the 
best point guard to ever play in the NBA because, you know, that was the basketball mission? Or do I stay here at UCLA and become the person that I want to be and be connected to the people that I know I need to be connected to and serve the purpose that, you know, I know that, you know, it's bigger than basketball. And so for me, by choosing UCLA, it was, you know, like the road less traveled. Like anybody who was, you know, kind of like, yo, if you go to Duke, I mean, if I go to Duke, I play basketball all day. That's all I think about. Like I'm away from home. I don't have to deal with any of the pressures at home. And I, if I do that, if I, you know, then, you know, it's a whole different path and, you know, uh, accolades when you're coming out of a, you know, school like Duke. So for me, it would have probably, like, I always say playing for a coach like Coach K, it would have accelerated my basketball career and I probably would have wound up, you know, a different, you know, basketball or quote-unquote basketball player. But being here, like, playing for Lavin, who had never coached before, you know, I was forced to be a leader, you know, and, like, learn how to, like, work in a hostile environment or, like, a start. Like, I've been, like, it's almost like working at a startup your whole life, you know what I mean? And and so, but for me to be able to know all these people and to come back here and, you know, have this special connection with, you know, alumni and just people in the city, it's, 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 it was so much more uh, worth it than, you know, going to a school like Duke. Who else has questions? Yes, yes sir. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Al Osborne, uh, I think some of you know that I'm a professor around here. Uh, Baron, uh, you, you touched on um, briefly the, the challenge that athletes have and a lot of the social pressures. And society puts a lot on, on you all. And um, we're seeing some of that played out right now with the kinds of rules the NFL uh-huh. has to deal with in terms of the personal behavior of athletes and trying to make judgments about what those rules should be outside of the game. Right. Do you have a thought on where all of that should be or shouldn't be? Uh, uh, is, the, is, is it the rule? Is the end, should the NFL be policing personal behavior? Uh, should that be left to the courts? Uh, where, where is the line on, from your point of view? Uh, or are you always going to be in the spotlight because you're a star and, and therefore you have, you're public and you have no private life? Uh, could you talk a little bit about that and how you view what seems to be happening in professional sports in this area? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, of course. See, the audience brings it. Yeah. Uh, no, that's a great question. I think that um, I have a, like so many different thoughts, and a lot of like sometimes my thoughts be, can be conflicting. But um, I think part of it is the pressure that now social media and society places on something. You know, uh, you take the Adrian Peterson or, you know, Ray Rice or, you know, all these, like, society put that pressure on the NFL to do something when, you know, these guys have jobs. They're hired to do a job. Now, you know, if, if you're an accountant and you do the same thing, are they going to take your job away from you? You know, and so because we're placed on a pedestal, we have to be, you know, like morally, we're, we're ha- we'll held at a, you know, at a higher standard. Right. Um, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, 
we are all people, we're all human, we all like have our struggles and our personal struggles and the things that we go go through. And I think that for us, like a lot of times we're not even really educated on um, social responsibility, you know, because we're so detached from society, you know. So, you know, something like Ferguson, you know, uh, a lot of guys protesting and doing things, I think they do that out of, you know, to me that's almost, it feels like the ALS challenge, you know. So it's like I'm doing something because I want to be something, a part of something that's ongoing and I can say that I participated, but it's just like after this is this and after this is this. And then, you know, um, Donald Sterling, you know, it's like I have a joke and I'm sure y'all are going to tweet this joke. I'm going to get a lot of trouble. So, no tweeting, no tweeting. So I won't, you know, but the joke, the joke is, you know, Donald Sterling got caught for being a racist and he cashed out and so his you know, his company for $2 billion. Right. And so now that allowed for these teams in the corporation to be like, all right, you got one of us. So now everything you do is not right. You know what I mean? And like, it, it allowed, you know, now there's, now you're judged on who you are as a person and not by the job that you do on the field. So, mm-hmm. you know, in Adrian Peterson's situation, like, I don't know. I can't judge this man. You know, but at the same time, like, yeah, you in, in, in our culture and what we grew up in, like you whoop your kid. You know what I mean? Like you don't do it like that or whatever those pictures are, but mm-hmm. you whoop your kid. So you can't really say like, yo, you got to stop whooping your kid. Well, you, you should have told us that 600 years ago. You know what I mean? You should have told like that's been a part of, you know, our culture right. and our brand. But you can't take this guy away from the game. You don't even like he has five kids by three different women. Like, you don't know if she's out to, you know, you don't know what the circumstances are. And I don't think that the NFL should really, like, become a part of it because they, they'll, they'll find themselves in an uncompromising position the same way they did with, like, the Ray Rice. And it's like, if you stick your nose into something and you don't come out all the way right, then, you know, now the NFL is being judged. So you might as well just leave it alone. Thank you. Hi, Baron. Thanks for coming. Um, My name is Shireen. I'm not a student, but I really admire all of you right now. (laughs) Me too. I think like I want to be with. I want to hang with them. I know. I'm sure they'll let you. Yeah, I'm. I'm I'm, I'm open for internships. (laughs) (laughs) I actually I work for Sony Pictures, so probably. Hey, there you go. There it is. There it is. I'll be knocking on your door tomorrow. I'll wear a suit. Um, I've noticed I'm a huge uh, basketball fan. Wondering if you're a Laker fan. I've been a Laker fan most of my life. I did watch you. I played the Clippers, and I did cheer for you. Thank you. I really followed you because of the UCLA. Thank you. Um, But I've noticed so many injuries this season, the first couple weeks. And, I mean, the rookies, (laughs) Randall, Smart, Aaron Gordon, foot, broken foot. Um, and then we have Westbrook, and <laughs> we have Durant, and just kept going. Nick Young, and it just kept going. Do you, what do you think is the reasoning, or what's going on with these injuries? I'm not. They play so much. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I, I remember when I came up in AAU, there were probably four tournaments you played in in the summer. You know, you played your high school season. You played in a spring league or something like that. Now these kids are playing 
hundreds of games in the summer, and they're traveling from Vegas to Tennessee. Like they're they're on. They travel more than college guys. So when they get to college, they're already used to the travel. And, and as they get to the NBA, the the um, the program is a lot harder. You know, there's a lot more travel, and so your body has a lot more wear and tear. And a lot of these guys are 19, 20 years old when they're coming into the league. So their bodies, you know, I was 20 years, 19, 20, but, you know, I, you, couldn't, you couldn't hang on the training table. When I came in, you couldn't hang on the training table. It was like, if you're a rookie, no matter what, it was like, if you were hurt, no, dude. You get out there <laughs> and you go practice, yeah. you know. These guys, like, their bodies can't really handle it, and they haven't really developed that much. So... I think a part of it is that they play a lot when they're young, you know, almost like way too much that they that their bodies become burnt out. And then um, I also believe it has something to do with the training and the way that uh, teams kind of treat it, treat their training and, and their sports performance within their within their own team structure. That's like the only thing that I feel like really haven't evolved in the NBA is like, you, you know, you're paying these guys all this money. Like, who's going to be the NBA team that's, you know, maybe it's the Sixers, that's known for paying attention to sports performance and keeping their guys healthy? So I'll just chime in. So I'm up in Portland, Blazers, mm-hmm. and you know all the injuries that yeah. they had. So they hired a new staff, and last year they were the healthiest team right. in the NBA. They're looking at, like, sleep habits yeah. and – you know, traveling different, yeah. and so that yeah. kind of stuff is happening. It, it, it it's, is. It's interesting. Yeah, and, you know, back in the day when we traveled, uh, when I played for the Charlotte Hornets, we had our own team playing, and, you know, nobody cared about sleep habits, and, you know, it was just now all these teams have team plans, and it's like, well, we're going to stay an extra day in Miami when, you know, the coach was like, hey, man, we got to get out of Miami. Right. My players, you know, they may not show up tomorrow. <laughs> but it's like if you spend the night in Miami and you fly during the day, it has a certain effect on your body. So when you get into the next city, you know, you're tired or, you know, want it's a better way to travel and the rest of players you know you watch someone like san antonio and popovich and people are like you know why is he doing that but every year he knows that the greater goal is to be in the playoffs and to be healthy so Mm -hmm. if i have to sacrifice ginobili and duncan playing against the philadelphia 76ers because they play four games at 30 minutes then that's what i'm I'm gonna have to do in order to preserve them towards the back end so you know good question thank you Hi, Baron. Uh, my name is Sheldon Fields. I'm a first year here at Anderson. Uh, two-part question. Um, on the first hand, uh, with the technology and the integration of sports, do you, if you were a rookie right now, would you be listening to the technology advances that are happening not only in the NBA but along with, with the teams? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that that would be like the main thing that I that I would be into. You know, if I was a rookie, I would spend most of my time with the team. And, you know, in the marketing department, figuring out what technology they're using, you know, because I'm now I'm like really, you know, into startups and tech companies and different things like that. But like as far as like how they uh, integrate with sports, Mm -hmm. that's the thing that I'm really interested in. So, if you know, if I was a rookie now, that would kind of be like, you know, I would probably spend a lot of time in the marketing department and figuring out, you know, what apps are they what apps are they using you know, uh, you know who's programming. You know their uh, their website. You know what are the advertisers paying for content, and you know just 
And if I could just ask one more question. Um, to me, the league is becoming a point guard league right now. So who are your top three to five point guards that you would like to guard right now yeah. in the league? Uh, I like um, Kyle Lowry, um, Steph Curry, of course. Chris Paul is really good. Uh, I don't know. Who else? Lillard? I, 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 I like Lillard. I like Kyrie. Uh, <laughs> I like Frigioni. He's thirty. He's thirty. Thirty-eight years old, dude. Uh, who else? Who else is Derrick Rose? Of course, Derrick Rose. Westbrook is like he's uh, he's like a total different dude. He's like a total different beast. He would be my number one if uh, if we were talking about point guards. But Westbrook is just like a player to me. But point guards like Steph Curry is a point guard. Kyle Lowry is like a real point guard to me. Um, I like Kyrie. I like Kyrie's game. I like his game. Uh, John Wall is good. You know, it's, it's a lot of, like, young point guards in the league. Like, that position is – that's tough. That's why it's tough to come back. It's like, yo, like, if I come back, I'm the first person they gunning for. Like, that dude. They, and they're going to want to embarrass me. I don't know if I'm, like, up for that. got to <laughs> Question down here. As I walk it down, uh, most fun teammate you ever played with? Uh, most fun, uh, Monte Ellis, mm. Steven Jackson. I would say that whole team. Because, yeah. like, it was, we had, Nelly came in the locker room and he was like, all right, guys, you know, we got 30 games left and uh, it's just not going to happen. Like, you know, we'll just, <laughs> we'll just, you know, finish out strong, Barrett's hurt. You know, I, I think I'm going to sit you guys the next couple games and, like, you know, it's over for you guys. And for some reason, the whole team was just like, you know what? All right, if it's over, like, let's just go out and, like, play like we don't care. And that was, like, that's exactly what we did. And, like, Monte, Steven Jackson, Jason Richardson was one of my favorite teammates. Eldon Campbell. Like, everybody for different, you know, everybody from different reasons. And I was, like, always the guy who was cool with everybody on the team. So everybody had, like, a nickname. So, uh, My name is Steven Ross. I'm a first-year MBA student. Um, first off, John Wall is the best point guard in the league. Okay. Uh, wow. I'm from, okay. I'm from no, I get it. I get it. Yeah. You're entitled um, to that. So I kind of, like, real talk, what's it like a day in the life of, like, an NBA player? Um, I'm sure a lot of us are curious. And then secondly, is Kobe a dick in real life? <laughs> wow. See? I like his shoes, man. Yeah. Uh, a day in the life of an NBA player, you wake up in the morning, 8 o'clock, Breakfast, go to practice, stretch, ice, get in the whirlpool, uh, shoot for you know, shoot for a couple hours, practice for a couple hours, come home, you know, take a nap, <laughs> wake up, have some lunch, watch some basketball, get ready, and either you play that night or you go to the movies. It's it's boring, dude. You know, it's like it's seriously like you're in a. It's like a spa. It's like a spa every day, and you're like locked into this world. Whereas everything is catered to you, you know, and, you know, it's, fa it's fabulous. But at the same time, like your body goes through so much that all you care about is like, all right, I know I have to eat and I know I have to sleep. And then whatever other energy I have, I'll go to the movies or go to the club, you know, depending on what day it is. <laughs> but you, it's boring. I, I learned that when I first got into the NBA because, 
You know, I'm calling all my homeboys from college. I'm like, yo, what y'all doing? Oh, we just, I'm, we're on the wall. We're on the, we're, you know, we're on the walkway. We had uh, Taco Bell. We just did this. And I'm like, what's happening with you? Nothing, dude. I just bought like 100 CDs. I'm about to listen <laughs> to them. Like, who's over there? Nobody, dude. I don't know nobody in Charlotte. It's just, it's, it's like, it's because you're, you're, you're automatically isolated. It's like, you're a 19-year-old millionaire in Charlotte. Who who do you hang out with? Right. You know who do you hang out with? It's like who do you like who who do you ha- and you're from California and it's just like you know it's 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 different. It's got it's got to be so tough different. Though. Yeah, it's it, it is. It, it it's an adjustment. You learn to like you know um, the funny thing is is a guy he like he's my adopted grandpa, like him and I became best friends. And like he started teaching me about finances and okay. different things like that. So you find, you know, you find people that are really cool or you don't, you know what I mean? Or not. Right. You find people, it's just depending on your personality. And for me, it was more so like I'd rather hang out, you know, with this man because he has, mm-hmm. you know, he's lived life and he has so much to offer. Right. And he's cool. Like a lot, of, a lot of my teammates wouldn't even give him the time of day. But for me, it was like, you know, this guy is cool because he knows a lot more than you fucking do. You guys aren't trying to do nothing but get me to go to the club. One or two more questions. Got one, two. Three, four. Three, four. Five, six. I'm a DT. I'm a first-year undergrad. So uh, I just wanted to know, what do you think about uh, one and done? And uh, do you think players are coming in too raw into the NBA? I definitely think guys are coming in too raw. I think the NBA is now drafting on potential a lot, uh, what somebody can be in the next three or four or five years. And so that's why you're seeing, uh, you know, such a discrepancy in, in, in talent. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, a team like, you know, Washington or, you know, comes out, of, they look like they came out of nowhere, but it's just, you know, John Wall was 19 years old when he came in the league. I actually, the one and done thing is, uh, I don't even think it can happen anymore, right? I think you got to play two yeah, years. Yeah, I think you have to play two years or something like but that. But they want to increase that. Yeah, I, I think, you you know, if you're smart and you get offered a job, you leave and go work. You know, if you're good enough to play basketball, you leave and you go work and you play, ba- you know, you go and play basketball. So I don't really agree with, like, the you know, spending all this time in college because, you know, for a, for a basketball player, college is probably, you know, it would be great if we – got to meet people like you and hang out with you and like you know you know you're you know you're in class for a short amount of time and then after that like you're going back to your dorms they're going to practice you know next week they're in Oregon you're here so you don't really get to connect and meet the people that you know you want to grow with like you do in high school Mm -hmm. so you know for for a basketball player you're really like you're really in an isolated place because you're behind you know you're behind most students because you know you have to work twice as hard right. just to keep up right. because your schedule is different yeah. and then at the same time a lot of the things that you're you're into and the classes that you're into are not preparing you for you know what you're going to experience in the world right you know and like you don't you're not staying till you're 24 years old and you're ready to all right like mom's like all right it's time for you to pay the loan and like experience the world you're 19 mm-hmm. with you know a lot of money and no instructions and it's just like okay i'll buy that like, yeah that's cool yeah, yeah. I, you know it's just so you're figuring it out but you know as far as like 
if you're good enough to go, you should go. Yeah. I mean, God bless the NBA, but like I've always kind of joked with the rookie orientation. Like, you know, they get with you for a day or two. Dude, and that's it's supposed crazy. to like teach you your whole lesson in you life. You have to pay attention to that. Even if you pay attention, like, uh, I mean, I probably, I'm always like 20. You know, I just need to pay attention for 25%. Like, that's all my brain can allow. <laughs> and I remember it was me, Ron Artest, Master P, Ooh. Jonathan Bender, Steve Francis, what Rip Hamilton. <laughs> and, 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 like, we were, like, the first, like, one of those first guys who were, like, all friends. So when we came into the rookie transition, it was just like, party! Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what are we doing? We working out? We hanging? Like, no... You know, and now we're all in this, you know, class in this seminar, and it's literally for five days. It's a crash course of everything you're going to go through in yeah. your entire career. At some point or another, like, you know, find, you know find, you're going to run into a bad financial manager. You're going to run into a couple bad girls who are going to try to do this. You know what I mean? You're going to, like, want to eat like this. You're going to have mm-hmm. to say no to your family. You know, there's, you know, it's just like all these different elements that... If you're not paying attention, you know, and then they have the history of the NBA because you have to know, you know, who these guys are before you. So you have a certain level of respect. And I think that's another thing about these young guys. They don't have they don't have a certain level of respect for the people who came before them, like Clyde Frazier and Earl of Pearl are really the beard. Artist Gilmore, they're really like the beard before me. And like, you know, I had to know who these guys were who rocked it so I can, you know, pay homage to them and I mm-hmm. think a lot of these guys don't really have that now. Yeah. And I'm sure they appreciate that that you do have that sense of history. I know we had a question over here. Uh, hi, uh, I'm a third year at the undergraduate school of UCLA. So I was wondering, um, since professional uh, basketball players, they play for so long, and because social media has become a major thing in the world today, do the pressures of social media affect the NBA players on the, like, on the court Absolutely. for the better or for the worse? Uh, it, could, it could be both. You know, it, it could be both. It could be great for a player who's just been injured, who you know, needs that positive reinforcement. And need those, you know, need those fans talking about, hey, when you're coming back, or you know, we want to see you. And then there's also, um, you know, the NBA player that's an idiot, and every time they post something, like it's, you know, everybody's like, don't post that, you're an idiot. You know, what I mean? you should be, you should be practicing your free throws. You're an idiot. You should be, sh-, you know. So it's, you know, and it can play into your psyche on the court because. Really, if you know, if you're smart about it, you contain yourself and you keep yourself around your same people, the same same coaches, so you're getting, you know, the same message. And if that message is off, somebody can, you know, if you're playing bad, someone can correct you. When you go to social media, you know, a lot of dudes do it when they do something great. You know, that same effect and that same kind of high that you get from like celebrating yourself, it can work against you. And the, and and in sports, it's all is a lot of it is psychological. So you know, it could be the last tweet you saw, and somebody was like, you know, fuck you, dude. I'm gonna be at the game with a fuck you sign. And you know, you're looking for that person the whole time. <laughs> like, I can't wait till I see that dude. I like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do, you know. And, and like, you're not paying attention right. to the game. So you know, I think that's why they stopped allowing tweeting in the locker room because right. dudes are just like. You know what, dude? I'm not playing. So, uh, yeah, I'm tweeting right now. You know, it's just like it, it takes you away from your world and your experience. 
How's it going, Baron? Big oh, fan. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm a senior here. And uh, my question is, you said you were friends with uh, Ron Artest, and uh, one of the worst things in the NBA was the malice in the palace. Did you ever talk about that, or when you played with Steven Jackson, did you ever? Talked about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> what did they have to say about that? Talked about it all the time. <laughs> and, yeah, and I, you know, I, I had a million jokes. I was like, dude, you hit the wrong person. And he was like... No, I didn't, dude. It was, yeah. And those guys are friends now, right? Who? Uh, the guy that he hit and, and Ron Artest. I read a story. I'm sure. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect, I wouldn't expect nothing Anything weirder. Different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Coming from Ron. But uh, that was just an unfortunate situation. But it's just like, you know, when everything goes wrong. You know, it's like. The fan with the beer is like, oh, that's not a good idea. And then it hits Ron Artest, and he's like, who did that? And whoever it was was like, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not a good idea, you know? Uh, it wasn't a good idea. No. But out of that, it was crazy because I, 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 I had a TV show, and I learned something new. Out of that came, uh, the dress code came. So, so David yeah. Stern was like, you know what, like, it's because of the way that we look on the sidelines that people like, feel like they can throw a beer at somebody who's a thug. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember the Iverson and the do-rags, and you know, everybody wanted to wear tattoos, and you know, guys started wearing tattoos. So it was like, all right, we're going to implement this dress code to make these guys, you know, we're going to be more professional and more presentable. Uh, on the bench and now you got dudes wearing like cowboy boots and like you know it's like you're not a cowboy dude you know in skinny jeans so it's just like it's like this whole fashion revolution started from uh the palace brawl interesting and this should probably be our last question yeah let's do uh we've got this and then this gentleman over here out of questions so we'll do one two and then we'll call it good colin scadden uh second year here at anderson uh, you played for a lot of interesting coaches, like Lavin, Nelly. Uh, I think it was Dunleavy for the Clippers. But who was the best coach you played for, and uh, why? Wow, <laughs> man, oh man, I played. Yeah, I played for Lavin, Paul Silas, Tim Floyd, Byron Scott, Mike Montgomery, Nelly, Nelson, yeah. Mike Dunleavy. Byron Scott, Woody. Yeah, uh, I would say Nelly. As far as he was, he just he knew the game. He knew how he knew how to come to a game and mess with your psyche. And if you were the best player on the on the team, he was go, he was gonna fuck with your mind. Like he could do shit that could fuck with your mind. And he had ways of like making you look incredible. You know, and that was his whole thing. He was like, I want to I want to hide your weaknesses and I want to exploit your strengths. And playing for Nelly, it made you feel like you had a stick of dynamite in your back because you felt like, you know, you knew exactly what you were able to do. And if you were good enough to do more, he allowed you to do whatever you wanted. Hmm. Um, So I would say in that capacity, it, it would have to be Nelly because he, you know, he was he understood in like a an artist. He understood basketball was art and it was design. And I think that um, whereas someone like Mike Dunleavy, he wanted to put you in a box and put a remote control in your back. And basically, like, if he could take the ball and pass it and shoot it if he wanted, you know what I mean? It was just like, 
whoa, dude, like, I just come from, like, painting all these, you know, these murals with Nelly, and then now you're like, what? I'm back yeah. to, like, no, I know Remote how control. to draw, dude. I know, yeah. like, I took art class all my life. But that's, you know, so that was the difference. Uh, Paul Silas was good because I had never really had, like, that type of disciplinarian or father figure. So when I got in the league, I was fortunate to have someone like him because it was just, like, he was really hard on me, and I didn't understand why. You know, and I just, it was just because he was, like, one of those coaches who were, like, set in his old school ways and, like, thought that, you know, it was smart to, like, keep me on the bench. And, you know, it was just, like, he he was – but it was good for me because it taught me how to work hard and different mm-hmm. things like that. And I think that uh, Byron Scott was – Byron Scott was good because it, it taught me a lesson when I was in New Orleans. And it was, like – it goes back to like being humble. I wasn't humble. And when we were going through whatever we were going through, I I wasn't humble. You know, I, I didn't humble myself. I got too big for who I was. And he was like, he stayed who he was. You know what I mean? And that eventually trumped me. And I realized like, you know, what that meant. You know, yeah. it was just like being consistent and staying consistent. Mm-hmm. And every other coach was just like, Woody was great. Woody was like, I, I really didn't. I really didn't get a chance to play for Woody the way I wanted to because I was injured playing for the mm-hmm. Knicks. But he was great because you know we would argue all the time, and he would be like, "Yo, what's the play? I bet you don't know the play coming out of timeout." I was like, "I don't, dude." I asked him. <laughs> I was like, "I usually ask Amari," and I'm like, and, and we come out the hu- you know the huddle, and Amari's like, "Yo, what's the play?" I'm like, "I'm supposed to be asking you." Like I never pay attention in the huddle because I'm just like. I got serious ADD. <laughs> like Mike Dunleavy, he would call two plays. And I was like, dude, you can't call two plays because, like, I can't even think about Like, as soon as I go on the court, the first thing I'm thinking about is scoring. Not about running the plays, dude. Right. And he's like, you didn't run the play. Run play one. I was like, dude, what the fuck is play one? He was like, <laughs> so I would get in trouble. I don't know if y'all, like, when I was with the Clippers, it was like, oh, Baron Davis doesn't know any of the plays. We had a book this big of plays. I was like, why do we need all this, dude? This is basketball. But I had to know them all. And he was like, ew, 254, three. I was like, what? Okay. Like, yeah, I got it. <laughs> he was like, you missed it. I was like, shit, dude. I was trying to register it. Uh, so Mike Dunleavy was probably the worst coach I ever played. <laughs> You love this kind of candor. All right, last question right here to this gentleman who's been very patient. Before uh, the last question, I just want to say a, a huge thank you to Brian and Sports Business Radio right, for thank you. coming here. And huge thank you to Baron. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Obviously, uh, a huge thank you to Baron. I mean, uh, this event has been awesome. Uh, for those of you that aren't in the Sports Business Association, this is what we do, so you should join. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, Baron, and thank you, Christian. Feel free to come uh, intern for me. I don't have an office. I don't really have a business, but I'm working for that guy right there. I want to thank Pistano because without Absolutely. them, we wouldn't uh, have this roadshow. So thank, thank you to Pistano as well. Hi, my, my name is Angus. I'm a first-year MA student at UCLA Anderson. Uh, question is about the lesson you learned from your grandma about humbleness. So can you tell me about a moment in the NBA game that you applied this life lesson? That's something that really stuck out. I got, I got hurt. I, I, I was in New Orleans. I had come off an all-star year, 
and basically it was like, you know, my face is, you know, like, say the Staples Center, right? So half of the Staples Center is like a silhouette of me, you know what I mean? Every billboard from the airport leading to the arena is a billboard of me, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I went into the year, and Byron Scott was the first coach, and he was, he was the, uh, it was his first year. And um, I got, you know, they told me, like, I was like, yeah, I'm coming in. I got my trainer. I got my boys. Like, this is how we did it last year, we, you know. And they were like, no, you can't do that this year. And I'm like, what? Are you crazy, dude? And I just kind of like, they were like, oh, Yo, you can't stretch. I was like, I can't stretch. Like, all right, I'll stretch outside. And it was just like me going back to like my rebellious stage of, you know, challenging authority or like, you know, oh, there's rules, like, or there's tape, like where, you know, you didn't define this part of the tape. Mm -hmm. And so it became a battle with management, upper management, and it was a kind of like a pissing contest. It's like, you know, I'm the star player of the team, you're the new general manager, and we kind of like got into this, you know, riff. And when I got hurt, it was basically like he had no, he, he really didn't care to like take care of my injury. It was like, you know, I'll cut my losses and I'll just let them rot. And at that point, it was just like I was rotten because I, I, I needed help. And so, I, you know, it was just like my humility had, had, had really just been broken. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like stuck, stuck on an island by myself. And for the first time, like, and it was like really like the first time I was like, okay, I'm a star, you know, and and it ha- and everything just started to kind of like wither away. And so it was just like a matter of like trying to figure out ways to pick myself up. And I knew like I had to just like hit rock, you know, I just allow myself to hit rock bottom and build myself back up. And then that was the, se- you know, the next year, that same year I got traded to Golden State. Mm. And I remember um, running into Byron Scott because two years later they get Chris, you know, I got Chris Paul the next year. And then they start bringing all these good players in around mm-hmm. Chris Paul, like the players I needed. And then they were like, like, good. And I was like, oh, man. And like now I'm in Golden State playing for Mike Montgomery. We suck. And then I was just like, dude, if Byron Scott wasn't the guy that he was, you know, like I probably would have, you know, like the way that I acted and responded was not the best way. So I wrote Byron Scott a letter because he wouldn't speak to me. Like I, we would see each other. And it was just be like, we'd be sitting right here and we would not speak to each other. It was almost like a hate. And I didn't know, I didn't think he, ha- I didn't know if he hated me or not. But, you know, in sports, like you hate coaches, like, you know what I mean? And coaches hate players. And so I wrote him a letter and just was like, look, dude, like we were, I was successful at that time with the Warriors. Mm-hmm. It was like the next year. And, and at that moment, you know, the dunk on Karolinko and all that, I was just like, dude, I need to do something that's going to allow me to like, become grounded again mm-hmm. because it was like oh fear of the beard and, uh, and 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 at that point it was like i need to write this letter to byron scott because he was going through some you know the team was starting to lose in new orleans mm-hmm. and i wrote him a letter like apologizing was like look dude if you weren't how you were i probably would have never bounced back and da, 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 da. but i thank you and you know i'm just humbled and you know i should have been a you know a better player and now i know with that relationship with, you know, with coaches and, and mm-hmm. player. And, you know, I'm just humbly going to stay in my place from now on. And 
just so happened I turned out playing for Byron Scott in Cleveland, mm -hmm. and it was at a point where we both needed each other. They sucked, and I wanted to get out of out of uh, L.A. Mm -hmm. playing for the Cleveland. I didn't want to go to Cleveland, but right. But it worked out, and it was like it, it, that moment kind of like rekindled my love for basketball, and we kind of formed this bond and became really good friends. Well, and it's a great lesson because. You know, the old saying, you don't want to burn bridges, right? Because right? right. you never know when you, you may know. run into someone yep. again. And you ran into him again, and good thing you wrote that letter, because it might have been different when yeah. you went there than if you had written that letter. And he's a head coach for the Lakers, so if I get in shape, man, who knows? See? Oh, All right, no. let's do it. Turn a hand. Hey everyone, I've been having a ton of fun with Underdog Fantasy. They're the new official gaming partner of Sports Business Radio. They're the fastest growing fantasy app ever with investors that include Mark Cuban, Kevin Durant, Adam Schefter, and Jared Goff. The Underdog Fantasy app is available at underdogfantasy.com on iOS and on Android. Once you've downloaded the app, you can draft your team in minutes to win real cash prizes. Underdog's primary draft-based game is called Best Ball. It's an innovative form of season-long fantasy that requires no management after the draft. Participants simply draft their 20-player teams, and each week they receive the points at each starting lineup spot for the players who scored the most points. There's no worries about setting your lineup, making trades, or working waiver wire deals. You've just got to draft your team, and that's it. Underdog also offers... Player pick'em games, including rivals, which is head-to-head -head matchups, and over-unders, as well as daily, weekly drafts, battle royale tournaments, and more. We've been having a lot of fun with the over-unders and the rivals matchups, especially during March Madness, the NBA season, which is winding down and playoffs coming up, Major League Baseball is getting started, NFL Draft is coming up. So we've got a special offer for Sports Business Radio listeners. New users get up to $100 matched on their first deposit when they use the code SBR. So download the app at underdogfantasy.com and then enter the promo code SBR to get up to $100 to play with. I promise you, you're going to have a great time like we have. It's a lot of fun. It's an innovative app. They just updated their app too. So you're going to enjoy the newly updated Underdog Fantasy app. Again, Go to underdogfantasy.com and then enter the promo code SBR to get up to $100 to play with. Now, here's Brian's interview with Sugar Ray Leonard from October 2011. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. One of my favorite commercials growing up, and my guest on the phone right now is six-time world champion and Olympic gold medalist Sugar Ray Leonard. Sugar Ray, how are you? Brian, that brings tears to my eyes, buddy. You know, you were one of the first athletes that started appearing in commercials. Before there was Michael Jordan, before there was Tiger Woods, it was you. You did a lot of different commercials. How much fun was it for you to do those commercials with your son, Ray Jr.? Well, with my kid, I mean, how, I mean, how, how, great, how great is I get? It doesn't get any better. 
And um, he's 37 years old now and uh, four grandkids later. Wow. <laughs> it's unbelievable. That makes me feel old. And then you even did a seven-up spot with Roberto Duran and his son and your son. I did. And did one, uh, we did a combination of me and uh, McEnroe, John McEnroe. I mean, it's like, wow. And you've done Dancing with the Stars. You've done some movies. How much fun is it to participate in the outside-the-ring things in your life? Well, you know, it's it's really stimulating because, I mean, the Dance with the Stars was really um, the most stressful uh, venture I ever got involved with because, you know, I'm, I can dance a little bit, but not ballroom dance. Right. And uh, it was just amazing. It was a great experience. I'm glad it's on my resume now. Yeah, I bet. Let's talk about your early career. Mike Trainer was a guy who was very important in your life. He's an attorney. He helped guide your off the or outside the boxing ring career. One of the stories I read, and I want you to tell me if this is true or not, is when you decided to be a pro boxer, he had to raise some money. He got about 24 of his friends together, and they underwrote the investment to help launch your boxing career. Is that true? Well, it's true, yes. I mean, he got together at least 25, 30 people who all each invested $1,000 to help me get started. Naturally, I didn't have a job, and the fact that if you turn pro, you want to be focused on that. And um, these nice, incredible people uh, gave me $1,000 apiece. I started my uh, my my career off. Uh, my first professional fight, I made like I don't know forty thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars. Paid them back their interest too, and uh, became a you know free agent, if you will. Or from then on out, they're like they say, the rest is history. Yeah, you became the first boxer that ever earned a hundred million dollars in purses. How important? I've had Charles Barkley on recently. How important is it for athletes to surround themselves not only with people who help them make good decisions, but people who aren't just yes people and telling them what they want to hear? It's essential. It's everything. You know, I mean, going from um, nothing to the biggest basketball player or baseball or boxer. It, it's very seductive, and it takes you for a ride if you don't keep your feet planted, if you don't keep things in perspective. So it's great. It's, it's, it's priceless to have good people around you. And do you and Mike Trainer still keep in contact? Is he still helping you with some of your things outside the ring? No, no, he's just playing golf now. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, but uh, no, I, I keep in contact with all my guys. I mean, from Jenks Moore, who was my trainer, uh, to Angelo Dundee, you know, just people um, that made a difference in my life and my career. Talk about Real Steel, the movie that's coming up with Hugh Jackman. I understand you were involved in that. What was your role? Well, I was the boxing consultant, and also I was the I choreographed the uh, boxing moves for the robots. Working with Hugh Jackman was just a real treat, man. He's such an athlete. He's such an actor, and um, he listened like a student. And I, I taught him not just to punch, but also to look and feel like a, a fighter, to look and feel like a trainer, because it's a certain connection there, a certain facial expression that fighters have, because fighters are born, for the most part. Champions are born. I'll tell you, one of the shows that you did that I really liked, and I was sad to see it come to an end, was, was it called The Contender? Contender, yes. Are you going to do that again? Because I thought that was really great, and, and boxing needs things like that to stay in the forefront. You know, boy, I'm so glad you said that, because it's so true. I truly miss that show, because it, it brought together kids or young men who, who I was like at one time, trying to make an impact, trying to do something for their loved ones. 
and it was a great show. I think it was a great, you know, the show itself has done well, extremely well overseas, and also here. I mean, people talk about that show all the time as I travel. We're joined by Sugar Ray Leonard, six-time world champion and Olympic gold medalist. Let's talk about some of your boxing career. I thought you fought in an era where it was the, the glory days of boxing, and you fought three of the most intimidating boxers of all time, Roberto Duran, Tommy Hearns, and Marvin Hagler. Sugar Ray, now that your career's over, was there ever a time when you were in a boxing ring that you were in fear? Not really fear, per se. Brian, boxers don't say fear. But let's say concern. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you concerned against? Well, Tommy Hearns, Duran, and Hagler. I mean, those guys were. I mean, those guys were talent. Those guys were the creme de la creme. And uh, but you know, I trained so hard. I dedicated myself so much that I made sure I had a uh, you know uh, a second second plan, third plan, fourth plan if the first one didn't work. You fought the rematch with Duran, and then you fought Hagler with no tune-up fights. How crazy did your family and friends and advisors think you were for taking those fights with no tune-ups? They didn't think I had a chance. They didn't think I had a prayer. I mean, they didn't say that until after the fight. But, um, you know, I'm sure everyone looked at me like I was crazy. My father-in-law, my dad. But, you know, because they loved me, they just trying to give me a little courage. But I saw it in their face when they say, so who's your tune-up fight? I said, well, Hagler is. And they thought I was crazy. They thought I lost it. You had a detached retina before that fight. I mean, did you have any concern that there's a chance I may lose my vision or it may have long-term impact on the rest of my life? You know what? I had the, one of the best, if not the best, um, ophthalmologist, uh, Dr. Ron Michaels, the late Dr. Ron Michaels, who said after the, after the surgery was done, he said, you know, Ray, everything went perfect. He said, the chances of you hurting that left eye are just as great as the one of the, as your right eye. So if he told me that, I was pretty secure about not being, you know, in jeopardy. Best stare down you've ever had from an opponent was it Hearns, Duran, or Hagler, or was it someone else? It was Tommy. Tommy took because Tommy because of his height. He means Tommy's like six two. He looked down on you, so it was more intimidating, if you will, than the other guys. So 30 years ago this month is when you fought Tommy Hearns for the first time. I mean, can you believe it's been 30 years? I was in Vegas. I, I was doing a book signing, you know, because my book had just come out in June. And I went there, and they said, 30 years ago. I said, 30 years? It was so, it was just so hard to imagine. It seemed so surreal. Do you still keep in touch with Tommy Hearns or Berto Duran or, or Marvin Hagler at all? Tommy and I call. He calls me periodically on the on my cell phone. You know, Ray, how you doing? I say, how you doing, Tommy? He asks me, how much do you weigh? Why do you want to know? And I see Duran at you know the Boxing Hall of Fame and other events. Hagler doesn't. I don't see him as quite as often as I see the other guys because ha- he lives overseas. He lives in uh, Milan. He lives in Italy. He really disappeared after his loss to you. He just went off the grid. Just went away. Just went away. He's that kind of guy, you know. He's a super nice guy, an amazing champion, but he's kind of to himself. We're joined by boxing legend Sugar Ray Leonard. All right, here's a question I've got to ask you. Muhammad Ali did it. Michael Jordan did it. You did it. Retiring and then unretiring. What is it about athletes, elite athletes like yourself, where you can't just walk away and say, see you later, like a Marvin Hagler? 
It's it's really it's uh, like I said earlier. It's seductive, and it's really one of those things that because you're in your twenties, you know, you think it's going to be forever, and all of a sudden you're thirty five, you're close to forty, and then when you retire, it's like. All right, so now what do I do? What should I do? What's going to give me the same stimulation, the same excitement as what I did in the ring, on the basketball court, or on the football field? You know, it's hard. You can't find that. But until you come to grips with that, Brian, you continue to search. And thank God for me, I eventually found something. I mean, it's not like boxing per se, but it's exciting and it's still rewarding. Well, and you're very fortunate to have the capacities that you have because we look at some other fighters and they're not doing so well post-career. Well, you know, I, I, I've been very blessed. I, I do motivational speaking around the world for, for companies. Um, I work with, you know, now I work with like Hugh Jackman and these blockbuster movies and I just released my book. I, you know, life is so wonderful. I... I, I I have a foundation called Sugar Ray Leonard Foundation, which raises awareness and funds for JDIF, which is Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. I'm giving back, being of service. I mean, all those things there really take over of what I'm missing. Your book was a great read, very, very candid and revealing. How did you come to the decision to write that book? Because now some people that looked at you one way may look at you a little bit different after reading that book. Well, you know what? I'm glad you said that uh, because it's not about them. It's about me. It's about me freeing myself from whether it's demons or, or, or situations that happened in my life with the sexual abuse, with my drugs, with my infidelities to my first wife, Juanita. You know, I made amends. And it was through that book that became so cathartic and so therapeutic that I was able to do that because I kept this on my chest for all these years. Um because, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy, I'm a, I'm a so-called celebrity, a boxing champion, and those reasons, and those are the reasons, for the most part, that you don't want to, um, you know, release or convey those things to people. Yeah, I'm sure it was hard to unearth some of that stuff, and I'm sure it was a very emotional book to write. Sugar Ray Leonard, six-time world champion, joining us, Olympic gold medalist. Who took you aside at an early age and said, here's the right path to go down? It was my older brother, Roger. He used to beat me up for no reason. And one day he took me to the gym, and I put the gloves on, and all of a sudden I said, you know what, this is me. Out of all the other sports, boxing was my sport. It's interesting because I've read at an early age you were a little bit shy, but seeing your 7-Up commercials and seeing your, your charisma, I would never guess that. Well, you know, I'm shy even now, but I'm, I'm sociable because I, I like talking to people and what have you. Um, but yeah, I was almost introverted. I was such a quiet um, wallflower, and boxing kind of took me from under the rock and allowed me to be, have more confidence in myself. And wow, it's it's been an incredible transformation, Brian. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Sugar Ray Leonard, six-time world champion and Olympic gold medalist. He's got a new book out titled "The Big Fight." It was released in June. He's on Twitter at Sugar Ray Leonard. How do you like tweeting? Oh, man, it's it's wonderful. You know, you get the fans and just even people who I, I haven't seen in 20, 30 years pop up on that thing. Well, you're doing great stuff. I follow your motivational speaking. It's great to see you involved in movies and in the community. And thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. I'll see you soon. 5G is here. 
Is your stadium ready? From an immersive fan experience to efficient game day operations, 5G is transforming sports and entertainment. If you're ready to jumpstart your 5G transformation, look no further than Boingo Wireless. Boingo is one of the largest operators of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. They provide stadiums and arenas with state-of-the-art 5G networks and support teams across the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, and NCAA. I'm constantly interacting with sports executives, and the reason they love working with Boingo is because Boingo manages 5G and Wi-Fi networks end-to-end, offloading very stretched IT teams. Whether your stadium is looking to support mobile ticketing, cashless payment, or connected operations, Boingo has you covered. But don't just take it from me. Their customers include world-class venues like Soldier Field, State Farm Arena, Petco Park, and University of Louisville. Boingo in 5G. Now that's what I call a win-win. For a limited time, Boingo has a special offer for Sports Business Radio listeners. They're offering a free 5G assessment for your stadium or arena. To get started, simply email sbradio at boingo.com and mention this podcast. That's sbradio at boingo.com. Our thanks to Boingo for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at molkasports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A sports.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions, griggsproductions.com.